Radio Shack. Okay. What? The 80s called. Welcome to the Coco Nation, the world's first live and interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and its hardware cousins. And when we say unscripted, it really is. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Even our intros are unscripted. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Hello, everybody. Well, let's see. We today is episode three thirteen. Enough. <sighs> let's see who we got on. <laughs> who we got with us today here? Uh, let's see. Top corner, we got Mark Overhoser, the backup streamer. Hey, glad to be here. It was fun last week, and I'm ready to go again. Do I make it look easy? No. <laughs> well, yeah, you do make it look easy. It isn't. Trust me, I still messed it up. Oh, uh, let's see. Next over, Alan, Nick's Island Paradise. Howdy, howdy, everyone. And Rick Uland. Howdy, folks. And Ron Delvo. Welcome, it says on my script here. To the show. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. All right, I could check that one off. Okay. Uh, next row, yours truly, the button pusher. Uh, Ken Waters is up next. Good morning, everybody. Sure. And Fake Ken Waters. Kevin, let's see. Hello, everybody. Hi. Can you hear me? Just oh, about. Yeah. All right, next up, L. Curtis Boyle. Welcome to the show, everyone. And All what's right. that L stand for? Love? Love my cocoa, yep. Yep, okay. All right, and let's see if we can catch Brian Weasler unawares. <laughs> Hello, all. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> that, like a little last-minute preparation. All preparation. Right, so... Preparation C. L? <laughs> All right. Next over, Brian Schubring. Oh, and muted. he's muted. Oh. Zoom mute. You tell okay, I'm not there calling. we go. Can we hear you now? Yeah. yeah. We yes, we you. can hear you. Thank you. And then, then, then we'll take a jump to the other side of the globe, uh, Nick Marentes. Hi, uh, goodbye, everyone, and uh, thanks for watching. Oh, hang on now. I'm reading the script from the back page. I'll just spin it around. You're reading it upside down Welcome. again, Nick. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. He's already <laughs> in tomorrow. <laughs> Let's see. And last but not least, David Ladd. Good afternoon, everyone, and I hope you're ready for today's show. I certainly am. And sit tight. We'll have a show for you. All right, over in chat, we have the usual suspects. Uh, got Ken and Mark and Kevin and J.E. Jones and Sixie and Tom Eric Gunderson and, and, and Eight Bits in the Basement, Exile in Paradise, and 
Who was that one? Frank Gladley. Yeah, Franklin Harris from Retro Rewind. And Davies Retro Corner. We should be covering some of his videos today. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's see who else was who was in there. Le Coco Stradingo. Strangiato. Strangiato. Lead reading names. One of those words. One of the best reasons to show up to the show is to watch Mark's pronunciations of people's names. It's just see great. If I can, how badly I can butcher it. <laughs> you know how many takes it takes to do the uh, patron scroll? I can well, imagine. Obviously not enough. Mark, are, are they going to use you um, to help AI figure stuff out? It's going to go the way of Hal. Oh. I'm oh, sorry, Hal. Dave. I can't do that. Sorry, what would the fun be if Mark gets an AI pronunciation guide here? This that's, that's one of my favorite parts of the show. Because he comes up with new different ways to say everybody's name every week. It's not even consistent. It's great. I Just look remember, to it. it's, it's Ron Deluxe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one of these days is going to be Steve Batman. <laughs> oh, let's see. That's right. Tell whose whose name will I butcher today? You should be able to get the uh, the guy that just joined the chat there, Brian Walsh. I think you have his name down. Yep, there we go, Brian Walsh. Alrighty, can we have a show that's all cats on display? Well, yeah, you know, all we got to do is uh, turn this over here a little bit. There she is, <laughs> Barfromatic herself. Yeah, my mine actually. Well, one of the ones I have here left uh, just literally about a minute before I got on. So smart. Yeah, smart cat. And from here on, we pass to Brian Weasler, and that'll take us out till the end of the show. Hmm. <laughs> so that's what you think. Maybe so. <laughs> Actually, that's what my next question was going to be. Brian, you got anything to show us today? <laughs> I told you. <laughs> <laughs> You're muted still. Sorry. Try to mute so I don't make so much noise for you guys there. I do have a few things to share if you guys. Uh, if you guys uh, te- uh, dare to indulge me, if there's a, but first, is there anybody who else has something they were going to share that maybe uh, might take five or five minutes or so? Well, I, uh, I was going to share something, <laughs> but I, I think Brian visited my house and got in the garage. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so show them, Brian, what you, what you found. <laughs> I will mention one thing quick, actually, when you were asking me before the show if I had any updates, and I, I didn't think I did, but I, I do have one. I spent about a full week of going through an old basic game system. It's not just a game uh, called Dark Castle uh, Game System that came out in early 1982. And there's no documentation. There's a very small ad with a very small description of it from 80 Micro. It only appeared a couple months, disappeared. And I spent the entire week trying to figure out how the game ran. I wrote some documentation for it. I just put it up on my site late last night or early this morning. I can't remember and got it up to the archive, should be there within the next week or two. It's pretty ambitious. I'm actually kind of impressed of what he tried to accomplish in the 16K extended basic program. Does have some bugs, as some of his other stuff has had to. Uh, so it's not polished or anything, but I was I was pretty impressed with it. And uh, you guys can check out the details if you want, or I can show you later on the show if you want. So is it like multitasking and have a grease weasel attached to it? No, that's that's hardware stuff. Uh, that's oh. up to David Ladd. This is all software. Uh, I see. Okay. Let's see. Um, I think, Rick, I... you had something to show. Yeah, I stumbled across this. Um, so you might have seen these uh, little pins for drawing PLA and ABS. I found one at Goodwill for five bucks. Could and, you uh, uh, elaborate on what PLA and ABS? Yeah, I have no idea what you're okay, talking so, about either. So three D printing, three D printing uses uh, 
plastic filament. And you can use PLA, which is the easy, cheap stuff, or ABS, which is the actual acrylated butystyrene, whatever that they make oh, cases the type of plastic. Yes. So this one has the extra, the two speeds, for whatever reason. It can do ABS, which is kind of unusual. So it's a, little heat, it's a little so, heater that... Uh, well, it's, it's, squirting, it's squirting melted ABS out the end of it. Well, so oh, it's like, it's like a glue gun. It's the same as our drink bottle. It's actually hot enough to melt into the ABS that, like, this keyboard's made out of. So all of the little nipped-off bottoms I replaced with a wad of this stuff and smashed it down with a spoon and uh, stuck oh, it together great. That sounds so, like it's high-tech. So well, I, I don't know if I don't know if I would pay list price for one of these little pin things, which is like forty bucks. But if you can find one at Goodwill for five bucks, and you need to stick a so case is it like down, a glue gun except it uses plastic? Well, it's actually squirting ABS, so actual plastic heated and melted. And in a three D printer, it'd be very precisely done. Obviously, with a toy like this, it's kind of a scribble device. Yeah, it sounds like a manual three D printer. You can, ABS. you can see what they're doing, except that's really ABS. So if you push it sort of into the plastic you're repairing and then squirt the plastic, it will stick it back together. Let and me ask you uh, a question then. Okay, could you use that to fix the door on a CM8? Probably. Um, the, the big thing about 3D printing is it's got the shears in it where it, it slides by and prints things. But when you've got a little pin like this, you can squirt it right into the plastic and just kind of melt, you know. Yeah, so you're filling in the holes where those little pegs uh, previously got broke off. Right, and actually squirting plastic into the old plastic and melting it together rather than trying to just stick something on top real quick. So could you, for example, and, repair a cocoa case that's maybe got a little gouge out of it on the top or something like that, if you can find the right color? Maybe so. I mean, you know. And ABS, I mean, it's nasty, but acetone will... will Melton, soften cool. and flush it. So, so it basically it, it fuses to other ABS, so it becomes one like a weld. Right, right. You're actually melting into the original plastic, which is why all of these little things here are holding. I only did every other one, and I've been beating on this pretty hard, and it's holding together. So I think it's a, a valid repair thing. Um, cool. In case you ever wonder. Cool. Now. The, the plastic that comes with these pins is all PLA, which is the low temperature, easy to work with stuff. But if anyone needs some ABS, I'll send them a couple feet. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, cool, cool tip. It works. Oh, neat. Good price at five bucks for you, too. Right, right. Just get to Goodwill's and throw them away. It's the kind of thing you buy your kid, your kid doesn't like it, it goes to Goodwill. So, you know. Yeah, we don't have a goodwill up here, so Ken and I are going to have to hit Value Village or something. Right. So if you're a rummaging type, you could find one. Otherwise, yeah, forty bucks is kind of hard to justify. So at Value Village, they'd sell it for thirty nine ninety five. Yeah, right. Right. Sale. And nickel off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, in Canadian dollars, it's actually a bit of a discount. So cool. Okay. Uh, let's see, Alan, do you have uh, something? Yeah, just uh, kind of a, a little bit of fun that I got into with the Cocoa this week. Um, back in 1978, there was a basic computer games book that was published that became rather widely known and famous. One of the programs in it is a maze generator. 
And <clears throat> I always thought that was really cool. I liked generating the mazes with it, but I couldn't ever really understand how the maze generation itself worked because the code was so much spaghetti. So it's just been one of those things. I mean, it's go-tos to go-tos and no comments. Um, but this past week, I ran across an article on the Medium website. <clears throat> guy named George Castro had been fighting that same, what the heck does this code actually do and why, that I had been. And he had managed to run across an old copy uh, or an archive of the original from 1972 that still had the comments and had a different set of logic for how the maze generated. So uh, this week I adapted that to the Coco family. It wasn't hard because it's all basically basic and Microsoft basic three was what was used for the basic computer games book. And before that was um, Dartmouth basic and edu system 30 uh, there's some some stuff to 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 mess with, but uh, got it running on basically all of the above, MC10, Alice, Coco's Dragons, and uh, threw it up on my blog. And I threw the 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 link up in the blog channel and on the basic channel in the Discord. And it was just kind of fun to to finally, after all these years, uh, understand how the maze really worked from within the code. And so I tried to write up uh, and show an example of that for the, the that guy, George, who, you know, was also fighting with it. And for anybody else who ever saw that and just wanted to know. So that's my well, Coco project for the week. Wow, Alan, that's a neat story. I mean, that's cool. It's being a detective. Yeah, and the fact you found the 1972 original code, like I did see uh, your post about talking about the book from 78. Which was, was that one of the creative computing books or a different yes. one? And there was a night, it was originally published in 1973 in a creative computing magazine. And between 72, when it was originally written, and that publish, publication in 73, someone overhauled that code a lot to get it to run on the edgy system. And that's where all the comments got stripped, probably to save memory. Yeah. And logic got redone, probably because they were trying to save memory for not using an array to hold the directions and stuff. It's but man, that go to to go to to if then go to that's some spaghetti. From, <laughs> it's pretty fearsome. The old spaghetti say, factory. Would you say it was a novel way of doing it compared to like today's codes or whatever? Yeah, the spaghetti version. I don't know anybody who would wish that on an enemy. The original version is rather straightforward to read, especially with the comments. But I mean, you can mm -hmm. look at the code and go, "Oh, it's making a list of directions." Okay, now if the if this direction is there, then go there, and and now draw the mate. It's just almost zero spaghetti in the original, uh, but somehow for some reason to adapt it, it got way redone, and all the variables mm -hmm. got renamed. But the original author was still credited. Well, remember back in the day, you always wrote pseudocode first because real code was wasn't good enough to express what you were doing. And then it, it was like a translation. It was, you almost had to disassemble back to your original thought. And yeah, that's ugly. Yeah. There was actually a discussion on the Amigos Discord because somebody was asking about, uh, you know, doing assembly code or, or just, you know, disassembling on old 8-bit systems. And they were mentioning how much easier it'd be if you had all these comments and you had like nice long self-explanatory labels for variables. And I'd explain, you know, back then when 16K was a lot of memory, 
and you know, sixty four k cost a thousand dollars. Um, you cut every corner you could to get the damn thing to run. Otherwise, everybody would wrote four k games because it'd be all comments and then four k of actual code because that's all you could fit. So yeah, it's 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 timely that you actually brought that up because that was an exact discussion they were having. You know, when I first learned uh, doing basic, and there was rem statements, I thought to myself, I mean. It's probably the logical thing to think, but it's not true that it wouldn't take up any memory if you put REM and then you have <laughs> because for some I, when, reason, when I first started, I had real, the same thought, right? <laughs> okay, so I'm not crazy. All right. <laughs> yeah, REM doesn't count. You can have right? whatever you want. It's, it doesn't count. That's that. only if it's a compiled basic. <laughs> right, right. I wonder if that's the same algorithm that Brian Schubring is demonstrating on his screensaver. I know that one was written in C. Yes. But. Yes, it is. So it's actually a very common maze generation algorithm, but the way that it was implemented in spaghetti code and some assumptions underneath it made it very opaque to try to understand. But once you actually mm-hmm. see, yes, it's just doing a random dig and then doing the walls, that's actually a fairly well-known maze algorithm. So, yeah, and you could take the, the version from... 1978 or the original and you could add those same functions that are going on on brian schubring's right now because it saves the entire maze in an array ordered by the number that it dug it out so you could actually redraw it in different colors with semi-graphics if you wanted i put a few ideas for things you could extend it with at the bottom of the the web post but um yeah that 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 amazing program from the 1978 is basically what inspired that screensaver idea and how to do those kinds of maze solving and stuff like that. And it is all still possible with the code that was originally published. That's not cool. what's on your screen right now, is it? No, that's a different project. But fun fact, um, in our call center, the load test as we were setting it up was to run XMaze on the pizza box on every pod cell. So you get the whole room lit up doing this. For the people that aren't aware of your your blog site there, Alan, and uh, who aren't on the Discord, but just watching or listening to the podcast, uh, would you be able to give the URL URL for your chat and post the chat? Exileparadise.com. It's not hard. So, um, and and, yeah, the, the one fun thing for you, Curtis, is that I have adapted that Amaze program to be my screensaver on EOU. (laughs) <laughs> so at the bottom, it just starts generating another maze with the same dimensions. Then it clear screens and loops. And, you know, if you don't turn on all the, the speed optimizations, the maze will be up for a while while it generates the next one. Then it just draws another one. And, yeah, that's I run it with RSB. I haven't done the basic 09 version yet, but that's an idea. But, yeah. uh, you know, but at least I, I wanted a screensaver for my EOU. And now I have one. Cool. Okay. Uh, Brian, you ready? Which Brian? (laughs) Weasler. (laughs) Unless unless Brian Schubring, do you have anything new to show or? No, I nope, 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 nothing new. The only thing I'm working on is uh, rebuilding my uh, um, packing your boxes layer. That looks okay. like a screensaver right there. It is. This was one that I got that was originally just black and white. 
and I dug into it and I DED'd a couple uh, spots and uh, made some pretty colors. It's fast. Yep. OS9 or nitrous. Yep. Now, enough plugging my projects. <laughs> well, the check cleared. I thought I'd do it. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Weasler, what do you have to show us today? Oh, I got a few few things here. Um, one is kind of just a little bit of a spinoff from last week. Let's uh, do this here. There we are. So last week I was kind of showing uh, some Burke and Burke. This is a, a, I was looking for something else and I came across that. I, re I remember I had this here. Uh, this is a Z clock uh, that he put out. Um, it was a, I believe this is just an OS nine based uh, application. Is that the right word? Am I using the right word or app? Yeah, it's, or it's almost like a TSR. It kind of runs in the, if I was, if it's what I'm thinking of. It runs in the background on any window and it'll put the time, the real time actually up in the corner and it'll keep showing it even if you're doing other stuff in that window. Yep. Now, for people that don't know what TSR is, terminate and stay resident. It's it's technically not. I mean, that's pretty well. Oh, it's not if you want to set it up that way. But uh, for those that are more used to the PC parlance, that would be closer. Okay. Mm -hmm. Stays the on top. Is, the other thing is they didn't have any concern about uh, 1999 back then, did they? <laughs> Do you think that? Um, was, uh... I can't remember. Well, I, like Chris's would have been based on whatever the internal OS nine clock was, and by ninety one mm -hmm. when this came out, I can't remember that should have been fixed by then. Do you remember Brian Schubring? When when did that glance come out with the Y two K patches? That was, well, maybe mm -hmm. it was a bit later. It might have been ninety six or well, ninety seven. Because it's weird. Because the the basic problem was not that the time was wrong, but they were printing one nine and then a byte, and assuming that would always yeah. be right when it should have been. 1900 yeah because internally it has you know, a, a the year right. since yeah you know since 1900 <laughs> up to 255 which means as long as they just added to 1900 they could have went to 2155 just fine but yeah they, but they did it. string slicing so depending yeah. on what he did it might have accidentally been perfect yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah i just thought i just thought i'd kind of share that because only because we were talking about burke and burke stuff last week there so one item there um so at, at Cocoa Fest, I, I showed this here, I think it was the, the week after Cocoa Fest. This is a board there that uh, Don uh, uh, Barber was making. Um, it was the um, it was the USB uh, uh, serial pack for the color computer. And he was selling just the board. And if you go out to his uh, uh, GitHub there, you can get all the all the components that you'd have to uh, to put on there. And we were talking about how this could probably be condensed down and, and stuff like that. But I, I, I picked up his board. Um, but I, I knew I had some empty cases and I found, uh, found one of them. And I just wanted to kind of show that, uh, his board does fit nicely. I happen to have, I have a couple of these empty shells where it's, it, it's not something that's salvaged. These were actually brand new stock type cases. Yeah. It's like what happened to the speech sound pack that used to be in it. Yep. Nope. This is brand new. Never been used. Uh, no, no screws in or anything like that. This was, so I don't know if this is what Tandy used or if this was some new old Tandy stock. I'm not sure, but, uh, it didn't yellow. No, nope. yeah, it would have to be either the York 90 or the, uh, speech soundtrack types. Thing it's it's white. Drops nicely right in there and the screw holes all line up there. So when you I get ready to build to. this, when I get ready to build this project, um, up here where the, uh, USB port would go, I just need to, uh, Cut a little slot right there, and I'll have a nice little case for this project. 
So now I have to dig out all of my long card stuff and see if it was possibly cut out of something like that by Tandy. Yeah. But they start with that in different colors and, you know, <laughs> I got to dig oh, yeah. out of the I have, I, I have a couple of these uh, empty shells like this, so. Now, if you mess up, is that ABS plastic? Can you use that? Yeah, you can just use the pen. <laughs> <Back for cabin. laughs> right, right, right. Fill her back in. So that was that. I just want to kind of share that. That was kind of it's kind of kind of fun. Um, and then uh, last week, uh, David Croker was uh, showing his project, and I was just gonna. I don't know if he showed one of these or not. The actual. I think he just showed he, the new one, like his his replacement version of his it. replacement. Okay. So yeah, I do have one of this, and I also have a pair of the uh, the guns that he was showing. So I kind of haven't had a chance to fire it up yet, but uh, I do want to no, try wait. it out on some of those games. No, wait, he he calls it a phaser. Uh, it's a light phaser. This is what this is what Sega called it there. So yeah. Wow, so future. <laughs> well, I ripped I, off Star Trek from the '60s. So I don't know. Really? <laughs> <laughs> but you can see here how this one here the battery was external, which is one of the things that he's trying to. Uh, Eliminate uh, any of them. Eliminate out of that, uh, out of that. So, but yeah. Mm. So, but it could. I do remember if you accidentally it. left this plugged into the cocoa, that battery went fast. Oh, mm. <laughs> it would drain. It would drain down. <laughs> like within so. a day or two, it would drain it dead. So. They never showed the battery on the phaser on Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I do want to. I do want to try this out. Uh, I want to pull up the games that he uh, that he that he talked about and uh, that this worked well in. Was there just two games? I know he talked about two, but were there other games? There was that two said? that were released. I, I did see some prototypes that David showed me and Bill at uh, Rainbow Fest. He had a, okay. like a Wild West one going, which he had demoed. And there was a second one. I can't remember what exactly it was because he was just starting that one. But the Wild West one was pretty well done. Um, but uh, that's when the big spat between Rainbow and, and ICOM started. So that never happened. Well, it'd be interesting because I know he said that he 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 picked up a uh, a lot of the uh, phaser guns. And he's going to try to repair them. And if he gets some of these out there, maybe they might might get enough out there that might inspire somebody to maybe create a game. Yeah, and the fact that, that Tim be- Linder has actually written the driver for it already, so you can actually do the reading of the where the, the gun is aimed yeah. at the screen type thing. The only problem is now is that, of course, it doesn't work with LCDs, which a lot of us have now. Right. You will need a CRT-style monitor. Yep. It should work with like a CM8 and, and all of that. Yep, um, yep. CM8, okay. Magnavox. I've used it on both of those TV, yep. regular TV sets. So along that lines with light, I wanted to I wanted to show this here. If I'm how many people have seen uh, one of these before. Oh, light pen. A light pen. I just kind of thought I'd dig that out. Cause it kind of goes along that same line with the uh, with the light from the CRT. Um, you know when the um, you know when we had the uh, what's that pen pad that we have for the Coco? Well, I thought yeah, I oh, thought the, that uh, X pad. I thought that was a light pen when it first came out and stuff. And then I, I realized, no, they're they're drawing like it has a pen in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a pen in there. And then that pad that you're drawing on is a resistive pad, I believe, or it might yeah. be capacitive. But anyway, it's uh, it's doing X, Y coordinates as you touch the pen to that uh, to that. Yeah. Pad. Actually, you don't even have to touch too. if you hover just a little bit above it can actually register that. And okay. some of the drawing programs took advantage. Like if you had the pen close but not touching, it would just so the little cursor moving around. And as soon as you touched, it would actually draw whatever you're touching. Okay, so, so, it's probably so how does this work? Well, this here works basically kind of the same way as the as the phaser gun works, where inside the base of this would be a photoresistor. So just like because it plugs into the joystick port. So with a joystick, when you're moving the joystick, you're you're moving a potentiometer. 
which changes the resistance, which then changes the voltage across that uh, across that voltage divider. This is doing the same thing, but instead of a potentiometer, it's using a photoresistor uh, that's inside here. So depending on the amount of light that's coming in through the tip of this, because it's hollow, depending on the amount of light that's coming in here, that changes the resistance. So in a sense, this is acting just like a joystick when it's plugged in. And actually, this plugs into the joystick port. So but there's, no, there's no button. There, yep. Nope, there's no button. It's just it, it, you're just mm-hmm. pointing it at the screen. I remember so, Spectrum Projects used to sell a lot of these in the early 80s, like 82, 83, and then it kind of died off after a while. I don't know. I never did actually have one, and I never did program for it. Like, does it does it register different voltages, like like the different readings that you're doing um, based on the color that it's under or the brightness of the whatever it might lit be the up? Brightness. So here I, I brought up uh, the um, uh, Coco Man's uh, joystick tester, and you can see that right now it's at 25. If I put my finger over the tip of this, you can see it drops right down to zero. And as I move my finger away here, you can see how it kind of starts as more light comes in. I'm going to point it at the light up on my ceiling here. And you can see, so this would be like full mm-hmm. light. So as I, I want to move mm-hmm. my hand in front of it. I know you guys can't see this, but I'm moving my hand in front of it. And you can see how it kind of drops up and down. So nice. if you point it at your screen and you point it at, say, the black text on the bottom versus the green text, I'm assuming it would be a lower right. number on the bottom. Yep. So I'm, here's, I'm, I mm-hmm. got right in the center of the screen right now. So this is the green of the center of the screen. You can see here it's kind of a, what, about 18, 19 right there. So I'll move mm-hmm. down to the bottom there where you indicated uh, Curtis there down in the, in the black. So you can see that that's now reading mm-hmm. zero. I got it pointing between the word test and Coco Man right now. On that so black if, you bar. Scanned a, if you scanned a white dot across the screen, there would be exactly one time when that spiked up to a really high number and you'd know where your pin was pointed. Right. And the human wouldn't see that because the white dot would scroll by and just kind of lighten the screen a little bit. Without making yep. a visible scanning dot that you would see. Yeah, I was reading the I was reading the manual a little bit, and uh, um, it, I think there was a couple of drawing. There were some programs that were available for it. One was like a drawing program where you could basically probably like I'm assuming point at two coordinates on the screen, and it would draw a line between those two coordinates, something like that. So, right. um, so the pro- the program that it also talked about was a drawing program where you could. Uh, I think you could pick different colors, it, it said, and you could basically draw a picture by going dot by dot. So you're kind of going at it backwards because the program knows it has just flashed a dot at some number. Did this pin pick it up? No. And <laughs> just go down the line until you match up, and now you know where the pin is on the screen. Right. Without needing any fancy hardware. Just I started at zero, one and one and ended up at... Yeah, whatever the bottom. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how specific those numbers are to different colors. Because maybe you could have a game where, you know, the person has to wave the wand and try to follow a moving object, and as long as it's a certain color, it's going to do a certain reading, and it won't on other colors. Chase the red thing. I don't know if that would work. Yeah, I don't know if that would work (laughs) or not. But so CocoMan.biz give you a deal on that software, huh? (laughs) Oh yes. Yep. 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 Uh, The the low introductory price of zero cents. Oh yes. It's a deal on any day. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> we, have a, we have a couple of comments on there. Uh, Seaner in the chat, and I should mention he's actually Sean Driscoll, the person who created the GUI B library that we have included with Nitrous 90 of you. Um, he said it was used in addition to other your other input devices. And then Sixie, Karen, the author of XOR, says, 
software that came with the Trojan light pen was awful. It would kind of fill from the top, then fill from the left, all in basic to find the location. So imagine that's pretty slow. <laughs> then lastly, the, the last thing that I uh, was going to share here, and uh, if uh, Nick Marentes is still awake. Um, <laughs> he is. Yes, the I news am. hasn't started yet. So I, uh, I came across this here in my, uh, in my group of stuff here. Ah, yes, I remember that. So I, I I thought I had the disc, but I wasn't able to locate it. But uh, it came with the disc here and five of his uh, uh, programs yeah. or games there. So, but inside here though was uh, it was it was kind of nice. It, he had a he had description of the, some of the different games here that you had in here. Kind of a whole uh, gallery of there, and then a couple of the inserts here. So you tried too. Yeah. You paid too much. I, yeah. I see that exactly. uh, you didn't have the cheat sheet. <laughs> so those, those color ones there, Nick. That's the ones that you actually had made that Tandy sold in Australia. The Tandy. That that was what I yeah. Because so even got the Tandy part yeah. numbers for Australia in the bottom, the catalog numbers. Yeah, they were the official ones, and they were they were with a cassette and in a baggie, a plastic baggie. The Donut Dilemma guy looks like my cousin Iggy. <laughs> <laughs> so I just I thought I'd just kind of share that. I thought that might bring back a nice memory there for Nick. So and Nick, what, when, when did you did you sell this package like this, or is this just like uh, or when when about no, would you have no, done that? I didn't sell it. Um, I'm not sure. Was that at a? Um, did I have that for Coco um, Pen Fest? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. That's where I was thinking. I might like I already had them all from you before that, so I didn't pick it up if it was there. But yep, yeah, probably because I know I didn't sell it. Did you make and your own manuals? Website. <laughs> looking at that website down the bottom there, um, that's about the era of Penfest. Okay. So, so did you make your own paper manuals with the saddle stapler? trying to think how i made See, that yeah there's a tell <laughs> if you if you flip it over the staples are on the front and i made my manuals myself and you would staple it with a saddle yeah. stapler and then you would slide it on the edge of your desk till the staples caught and fold the edge over which meant the yeah. staples weren't in the back they were actually kind of on the front if you lay it down flat you'll see the yeah. staples are on the front well Cl in this close case, the book his, no his staples uh, are on the inside right here well no but close the book and let it just sit on the table. See how the stables are on the front? That's where okay. you fold it over the edge of the table to put the crease in the back of it. As okay. you make all your manuals up. <laughs> See, Bill and I just cheated. We had all this equipment for doing this professionally at work, so we there just used is. that. <laughs> you, need, you need this. Oh, yeah, there you go. It's a stapler yeah. with a really long throat. <laughs> no, I wouldn't know how to. But I... Uh... I just kind of, this here did kind of jump out right here. It says, keep an eye out for the large Space Invader figure and OS9 logo in the background. Yep. That's the best part of that uh, game. Yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, too, because I've watched a few people like review it and play it live on streams and stuff, and they don't even, they're so busy with the action, trying to just, like shoot the aliens and not get killed that they don't even notice that stuff going by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, that that's uh, all, right. all I had to share today. Gentlemen. And that's Ooh. the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And job. we didn't even have to talk about Neutroid. That's awesome. <laughs> was in there now though. for Neutroid. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. Um, commercial break and then game on results. Commercial break. Yes. 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 Okay. Commercial sure. break. Yes. Okay. Let her rip. The Coco Nation Show is an unscripted, live, and interactive broadcast. Anything can and will happen. The views and opinions expressed by members of the panel and the live audience are their own, and not necessarily those of the Coco Nation Show, its sponsors, affiliates, or subsidiaries. Open minds are encouraged, and a sense of humor is recommended. Thank you for being a part of the Coco Nation. Hey, Amy. Hey, The Coco Nation Show would like to thank the following patrons. Alex Gare, Brendan Donahue, Brian Walsh, Brian Weasler, Kieran Ascom, Daddy Burrito, Diego BF109, Dinty's Hideaway, Don Barber, Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Grant Leedy, John, Boat of Car Schaller, Henry Strickland, Justin Larson, Ken Reichard, Mike Rayburn, Patrick Euland, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, R. Allen Murphy, Retro Tech Time, Rob Inman, Rocky Hill, Steve Batson, Terry Stege, Tom C., Tom Gunderson, Tom S., Tony C., and William Athing. Thank you so much, patrons. Welcome to everybody's favorite segment, Who's New to Discord? Bill O1 says, My name is Bill O. I had my first exposure to programming on a timeshare system in high school. There I learned BASIC and Fortran 4. Fast forward to February 1981 when I bought my 4K color BASIC box which I soon had upgraded to 16K EXP. I retire in a week and will then have time to set up my recently acquired COCO 3. I have experimented with the emulators and wanted the real thing once more. I look forward to attending next year's CocoFest and possibly Tandy Assembly later this year and reconnect with the Coco community. The previous bios were edited for time. Thanks to, Boysen, Glenside Computer Club, Kev Hole, Nightbeard, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Tandy Color Computer 3, and the Coco Nation patrons for boosting the server. Please consider joining Discord and visiting the welcome section to read these bios in full and see what the community has to offer. Just go to discord.thecoconation.com. Pro tip, after swapping your 6809 CPU for the Hitachi 6309, be sure to take a moment to savor the smug superior feeling. Because cocoing is better together.
Welcome everybody to the Coco Nation Game On Challenge of the Week results video. This week we played Wizard's Den, and we had a total of 17 participants. Exile in Paradise with 6,100. Mark B with 17,300. Bill A with 25,250. Damon Beals, 30,250. L. Curtis Boyle, 37,500. Mr. Dave, 6309, 70,050. Coconut Bob, 75,000. Nine Finger Tom, 84,850. Ed Rhodes, 86,150. Shenley, 87,100. TJB Chris, 90,450. Canadian Retro Things, 101,300. 8 Bits in the Basement, 144,200. Rich N, 148,600. Sloopy Malibu, 177,950. Sabhead, 201,700. And the number one score this week was... Tasman with 206,500. Thanks everybody that played, and we'll see you again next week. And here I thought I did real good because I found level two. <laughs> so you, you discovered that games actually have a level two, hey, Mark? Yeah, it's not just this rumored uh, theory thing. <laughs> So I think uh, people actually had a lot of fun playing Wizard's Den, as um, a lot of people were saying that they had never heard of this game. It was one they did not see back in the day when it came out. So um, I did find a couple articles on it in Rainbow. Let's see, uh, Rainbow June of 88. On the high score, we had somebody that submitted 195,050. We actually beat that, so that, I think, is a fairly reasonable score. And, uh, where's the other one? Oh, actually, it's on the same thing. I shouldn't have stopped my share. There we go. Rainbow, January of 88. Um, they had... An article, a review of it, a uh, nice big half-page full-color picture of the screen. So, um, basically, they said that it was a uh, bit of an overly done type of game, but this release uh, did breathe a bit of new life into the old routine. And several uh, features set Wizard's Den apart. Uh, it was very user-friendly. If the joy if you select the joystick option, the keyboard sequence also still works, which helps in going through some tight spots. Um, it's very welcoming to all ages of uh, kids, and the documentation is adequate, but the on-screen information is more than enough. And they suggest using the joystick that it uh, greatly enhances the quality of playing the game. So I think this reviewer definitely really liked the game. I know Aaron and Boat, they did their pre-record of the Coco show on Friday. 
and they really like the game too. They'll be releasing that to YouTube later on. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess Aaron played it enough this week. He actually got up through level three or four, something like that, and, and yeah. actually did quite well. So he's planning on doing a live stream at some point and actually seeing if he can finish it because he wants to. There's eight yeah, levels, I believe. I Is that correct? There's eight levels. Yeah. Um, yeah. A number. I think I got to level four once. So, um, yeah. I found the uh, definitely for the biggest uh, tip for the game is get to know which th- um, things to pick up are poisonous because you'll lose a lot of health accidentally picking up poison vials. So, yeah, they're fixed too. Like it's not randomized. Yeah, right? it's fixed, and um, the poison vials look different than the helpful ones. So, um, once you get to actually pay attention to what you're uh, going to pick up, then. Because actually, the first few times I played it, I didn't realize I was picking up poison. And <laughs> I would be like, okay, I have lots of hit points. And then I'd go through a room and I'd look and I'm like, how in the heck did I lose like three quarters of my hit points? Yeah. So No, it's it's definitely um, a sleeper hit, I think. It's, it's a game that was great when it was released. It was one of the best of this type of game for the Coco 1 and 2. I think the main reason most people didn't hear of it is one, Tom Mix was starting to get out of the co community by the time this got released. Not totally, but they were kind of like not doing their massive multi-page ads they used to do. And I think it had the misfortune of being released right around the same time that Coco 3 was. So people who bought Coco 3s, you know, this is a really good game, but they wanted, you know, 16 colors and they wanted yeah. all the fancy stuff. So I think it kind of fell to the wayside, just a, you know, bad timing. Which is unfortunate because, yeah, it's definitely a very good game. Yeah. I know Boat said during his uh, little brief review of it there that uh, his favorite side, you know, scrolling, you know, sort of gauntlet style or whatever you want to call it game had been Time Bandit up until now. And now Wizard's Den is his favorite. So he thinks it's better than Time Bandit, which is, uh, you know, a classic on the Coco as well. Yeah. Well, I think this definitely has the teeth to be a classic if more people had known about it. Yeah, Tom said a few of these. Dragon Slayer was another one we, which you covered on the game on Challenge yeah. Four, which had you know 160 screens to go through. And you know, I you know, I bought that one in person. I, Wizards Den, I didn't. I didn't. I don't remember seeing Tom selling it. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> might have been snuck off to the side somewhere. Well, like you said, it was an unfortunate time for it to have been released. So, Mike Miller in the chat is saying, "Wow, sounds like it needs a dragon port." I agree, and definitely graphics-wise, I mean, if you played it in P-Mode 3, you did get some odd colors, but you played black and white. I don't think too much is color-dependent. The problem is going to be this one requires a disk drive, and Dragon DOS, unlike Extended Basic and Color Basic, is pretty violently different on the Dragon than it is on the Coco. It's, you know, we use granules. They actually did sectors, and they're not compatible in the slightest, so somebody would have to rewrite all the disk routines in order to port to the Dragon. So that'd be like a a Kieran or a, a Parasrat thing. They've done it before, so it's not impossible, but it would take a fair bit of effort, I think. Like that violently different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um um I know that a few people did have trouble loading it. I um I haven't figured out why some people were able to change the color set. Like when you load it up, if the colors are backwards, like on my computer, if I hit reset and tried to do it, then it wouldn't load. 
There, from what I understand, there was a couple of bugs I saw being mentioned. The other one was if you uh, had hit reset to reset the colors, you couldn't hit E to enter it. Like yeah, the game. that's that's what I'm talking about. Like, so when, there's something in the reset trap routine that is mucking something up. Uh, yeah, a basic variable or something. But some people were saying they didn't have that problem. So, I wonder if there's two versions floating around. Maybe one's bad and one's good or something. It might be. Oh well. I didn't mind playing it in the reverse colors. It didn't make that much of a difference. Six or eighty-seven, <laughs> gimme. I know two. Uh, mine is an eighty-six, and it has that reset glitch. Damon Beals said he had an eighty-six and had the same reset thing. So I'm wondering if the people that don't have it are the ones with eighty-seven gimmies. Um, we did oh, check DRAM versus SRAM, and uh, on the eighty-six gimme, it didn't matter which RAM type you had; it would do that. But, you know, the the real tip, I think, was uh, Coconut Bob said, just hold down your F1 when you power it on, and then you don't have to go through the reset screen, and then you can go in the game. Yeah. With or the right just colors. play it with the colors backwards. It's a fantasy world. There could have been orange trees. I, I will make one comment. I've seen two comments in the chat. One was Alan, actually, was just talking there um, about time bandit and was in the same universe, same trees. And 60 says some same baddies, some of them, they are subtly different. They're not exactly the same. I, I thought that, too, when I first saw it. But the trees and those weird uh, creatures, like with the little tentacles and stuff, I can't remember what they're called in in, in either of the games, actually, off the top of my head. But uh, they're not exactly the same. They are a little bit different. Now, were they kind of borrowed and then modified a little bit? Or were they just coincidentally you know the same i think there was so much time between the two games like four years i think it probably was at least inspired by that's <laughs> <clears throat> a really well done game and the uh, the author of it that's matt harper i think is that correct i believe so yeah as far as i know he never did another coco game which is a shame because that was an excellent one. i would have loved to see what he could have done with a coco three yeah even a version of this uh type of game like take the same style of gameplay and just make another version into the coco 3 would have been interesting to see yeah nick you could do that instead of neutroid 3 or 4 or whatever the heck you're on now 16 I'm i think he's neutroid that. 16 gonna... neutroid neutroid's going to be the the greatest game ever <laughs> in nick's mind gonna... only folks you're gonna keep doing it until it's the greatest game right yeah he'll be on his deathbed one more change gonna... it'll be better <laughs> i'm gonna hammer it into him <laughs> now there's a good doug game go with the hammeroid yeah. <laughs> all right well did does anybody have any tips or tricks for this game that uh haven't been mentioned or I didn't get a chance to play it enough to really get a good score. I had the one score playing it in one hour. I mean, the Mark, first you day found I... level two, so you should have some tips and tricks. Um, let's see. Stay off the bones. <laughs> uh, in fact, I did the reading of the directions on this one. You did. I'll get to that, though. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's right. <laughs> no one else heard it, though. <laughs> um. Well, let's see. So I guess there was these rock things in there that you couldn't. Uh, sometimes you can go over. Sometimes you couldn't. wasn't too sure on that. Those little white boulder things. I think it was an attempt to have kind of a three D perspective that uh, sometimes you can go over it if you were offset of it, offset from it enough that it would be passing behind you or whatever. Hmm. 
Okay. But no, I, uh, you only played it uh, uh, a little bit there. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I guess um, that was uh, Wizard's Den. And the other game that we played this week was Shaft. Detroit. Oh. No, sorry, Nick. <laughs> you got to wait until Sloopy's choosing the games again. He'll probably choose another version of Neutroid. Next week. <laughs> <laughs> so Shaft is basically a game where you have to run across the screen and avoid getting hit by elevators. Kind of reminds me trapped. of Coco Fest a few years back. Oh, no, we got trapped <laughs> in the elevator. That was different. Well, now going to Coco Fest, you avoid the elevators. Yeah. <laughs> or just the elevators with David Ladd aboard them. One of the two. Just avoid David Ladd. <laughs> <laughs> so did anybody play that game and have any thoughts on that? We are playing that one for one more week as well. I'm hoping to have some time to do it with the long weekend here. Mm -hmm. Um this weekend. Uh I have played it, you know, obviously before. It it definitely is one that ramps up the difficulty pretty quick after you go through the first set of screens and then it starts getting, you know, really hard to get the timing right. Wait, ramps it up? First set of screens is hard enough to get by. Oh yeah, no, it gets way worse. That's one <laughs> one thing about the game is that uh it really does depend on how they randomly place the elevators, whether you're even gonna make it across or not. Yeah. It's a it's a very simple concept game, but it's it's I know I haven't played every arcade game or every a game on every other 8-bit system, but I I don't remember seeing anything like it previously. I think there is a couple games that are similar to it, but uh, yeah. Frogger and Joey come to mind. <laughs> I remember watching somebody do a review of a game a while back that looked very much like this game, but I can't remember what it was. It has something to do with working in a restaurant. So... <laughs> But yeah, okay, well, if nobody has anything else to say about that, it's just uh, basically a game where you have to just keep trying. <laughs> yep, Eventually, it just requires a Coca 1 or 2 16K joystick. Yep. And, or Coca yeah. 3. Yeah, at, le at least a Coca 1 or 2 or 16K. But yeah. Because of that, so, Wizard's Den, if I remember, that requires 64K, so you need a maxed yeah. out Coca 1 or 2. So, uh, yeah, I would say Shaft is a little bit addicting and frustrating. Yeah, that's a sign of a good game, which is why Neutroid's not. <laughs> All right. No more mentioning <laughs> Neutroid today. New rule. No more mentioning Neutroid today. Especially from Nick. <laughs> so we did do the live stream um, Game On Challenge on Thursday night. Is right here. Now, unfortunately, for about the first hour, we uh, um, played the game and uh, then realized we weren't streaming. So we missed uh, Mark's dramatic reading of the instructions for Wizard's Den, which actually took up about 20 minutes of the uh um, first hour. So, as we said, he did read the instructions for it. Just nobody got to hear it except for the people that were in the channel. So, 
It was just a technical glitch, but we actually did have a few people in playing and chatting and having fun. So we went for about another hour and 20 minutes after that. Well, once we finally yep. actually started streaming. Yeah. We had to find the on button. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we forgot to press the on button. Oh, well, and as you can see, uh, both Wizards Den and Shaft were played quite a bit by just about a just about everybody went back and forth between the games, I think. Yeah, and that's a sign of a good set of games. If if you're you know, get a little bit flustered in one, you go to the other one, then you get flustered with that one, you go back to the first one, but you're not just sticking with one because you don't like the other one. That's actually a good sign. Um, I, I'm noticing here whoever's on the top middle, I don't know who that was there, but they're actually playing it with the online expert. Which I don't think we've seen too often on the live game on challenge, have we? Uh, that might be eight bits in the basement. Okay, because that, that's a good solution for people who don't want to have to bother <laughs> installing actual full blown emulators on their system and finding yeah. them, you know the right ROMs and all that kind of stuff. It's just an online in your browser where you go. And I do have to give a special shout out to eight bits in the basement, Peter, there because he joined us from France, which was. Two or three o'clock in the morning for him. It was so, four in the morning. I heard by the end when, of it. Yeah, he said I have to go to bed. Four now. in the morning. He's like, <laughs> that's, that's dedication. Yeah, that's so. That's that deserves a special shout out for uh, joining the live stream at between two and four o'clock in the morning for him. And I guess so. we should shout out Nick Morandi's too because he shows up here every week for the show at roughly the same time for him. It's four in the morning. Yeah, but. But, he, but, but I gets, am still sleeping. He, he gets up and then gets to go take a nap. Peter had to stay up and uh, actually stay awake and play yeah. the game. But well, worse yet, us. he keeps plugging that other game that we don't want to mention anymore. So <laughs> I, I find I sleep better when I watch the show. Especially during the news? <laughs> well, that's more like an induced coma. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Again, that's on Thursday nights that we do that. That's uh, 5 o'clock my time. So later than that for everybody else, because I'm on the West Coast. So Oh, got, got an update on this. Uh, 8 Bits in the Basement said, no, he used VCC on the hard drive. Oh, he used VCC? Okay. And so LaCoco Strangiato good. said, that was me on XWare, and I couldn't get any of the controls working. Oh, okay. That's So, Karen, I know you're in the chat. Is there an issue with some of the controls? Have you tried Wizards Den on the online XWare? I'm kind of curious. Well, I think Sloopy tried it on during the show too, and it worked for him. So, so it might have been a browser setting or something. Possibly, I I am the least knowledgeable pre person when it comes to XROR, so I have no idea. Yeah, I know a bit about the 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 you know the desktop downloadable version of XROR, but I I've used the online one once in a blue moon just to see if I you know try to remember a game you know and I can't remember what it looks like. I'll just quickly fire it up and. From yeah. the color computer archive, and then oh, okay, that's the one, and then that's, that's how I choose games. Are. I just go through and hit the play now. Yeah, that game looks good. <laughs> hey, yeah, Kieran's actually the... working on a, a new version of XRAW um, with a new one new feature which he showed me yesterday. So I don't know if he wants it mentioned yet, but Kieran, if you're there, we, we can override can him show... and just you can just tell us. <laughs> hey, no, I no, just wondering, Kieran. Uh, do you want me to mention or show it on the show in the news or uh, top secret for now? 
Well, he just oh, answered one thing. He said, I've not tried it. The one on the Color Computer Archive is quite old now, but the keyboard joystick should generally work. But it's it's several versions behind from the desktop one. So so one thing with the XROAR online that I've run into when I use the, the web version is, is sometimes with the browser, you might have to click to a different tab and then click back to get the controls to go from the browser into the XROAR. And okay. on the tablet, I've actually had to switch from one app to another and switch back occasionally. So, so it's losing focus on that app or something or yeah. linking the. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So in the browser, sometimes it, the browsers have like a little virtual cursor they keep with where you're at on the screen. And it's not in the XROAR itself. It's somewhere else. And so switching tabs and then clicking back into the XROAR window directly or um, switching apps and coming back uh, has occasionally jiggled that mouse for me and gotten it to work. So, but I've had it where it, it, it the XROAR is completely unresponsive. You can't type anything, and until you click into the window or switch tabs and then click back and click into the window or switch apps. So maybe try that. Yeah, sixty says, yeah, clicking in the emulator window is sometimes useful. Um, I, I think I've actually encountered that too now that you've mentioned it, where it kind of loses its link to what you're doing. Um, he uh, also mentioned for Nick here, he said, go for it. I've mentioned what I'm doing before. Feel free. Okay, I can show you a screenshot later in the game news. That's up or Nick, so really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But first, okay. we have Ken has to make a big announcement here. Okay, well. Oh, yes. Neutroid. So that was the two <laughs> games that we played last week, and we are playing... Neutroid. Um, we are not playing Neutroid. <laughs> you see what Brian's are... playing right now, by the way? Brian Weasler? Neutroid. He no, he's playing uh, a medieval Madness game. with his gun. Yeah. Ah. Okay, so back to what well, I was roll, saying. Roll into the game news and you can show uh, Brian Weasler's thing. We are playing Shaft again for another week. And I decided to stay with kind of the elevator theme on this. You're just and trying to scare me and David to get it to, uh, what do they call that, when you get traumatized? Now this is a game that I had uh, actually promised um, Poco Man that I was going to do on the Game on Challenge. So does anybody recognize this game? Uh, yes. Warehouse. Willie's Warehouse. Ding, ding, ding. Give the man a prize. That's it. We haven't done this one already? I thought we did. I don't think so. I think so. Not or maybe I'm thinking one, Candy Company by the same. We played Candy yeah, Company. We did do that, yeah. So I find this one actually more fun myself personally, but just just to, for complete sake, I will show there is the so Willie's Warehouse, and we will play on level one. No need to change the settings because it's hard enough. Yep. Another one that ramps up difficulty fairly quick. <laughs> Spelt kamikaze wrong. He could have just made a new word. Well, possibly, <laughs> like I always do. All right, That's a good so pick. That's a really good game. Those are the <clears> two for uh, next week. So Shaft and Willie's Warehouse. And for those who want to know what to what to run it on, Willie's Warehouse requires a joystick, 32K, and a Coco 1 or 2 or 3, I believe. 
I believe so. I should. I don't actually, think it needs 64. I think it just needs 32. I should actually look these things up before I announce the games, shouldn't I? Yeah, I mean, for people with emulators, it's not really a big deal. But for those who want to play it on real hardware, you want to make sure you at least have the right system to, to play it. I'm just quickly looking that up and exactly what we need for that. And Willie's Warehouse requires Coco 1, 2, or 3, 32K RAM, joystick optional. Oh, so it's keyboard or joystick. Okay. Or I screwed up one of the two. (laughs) Uh, Yep. So if you go into the um, option screen, you can change between joystick and keyboard. Okay, cool. One or two players. So uh, this could be a good sibling rivalry game. Tim, if you're listening. Yeah, they just did Buzzworm, which we'll be covering the game on news. And Funnily enough, they recorded great. it before the fest there, and they, you know, they're hyping up the fest, and we're gonna get to meet jolly people, and they release it like a month later. <laughs> is it is this game written by the same people by person who did um, Candy Co? Yep, David Clark. Yeah, David Clark right. from Intracolor. Also did Color Pete, Robotech, Grand Prix, which is the only one of theirs I think of his that's actually disappointing. Um, because that has those whiplash corners. <laughs> oh yeah. So is uh Willie's Warehouse his uh last game or latest uh of the games he did? Uh, did Willie's come out after or before it came out in eighty four, so I honestly don't remember which of the two came out or if they came out simultaneously. Yeah. I know Color Pete was first, Robotech was second. I think Grand Prix was third, and then the other two, I'm not sure what order they came in off the top of my head. Yeah. All right, well, that's all I have to say about the uh, Game on Challenge, except, uh, hey, Thursday nights, you have no excuse not to be there. If uh, Peter could make it at 3 o'clock in the morning for him, you can make it for whatever time it is for you. Yeah, <laughs> Nick. <laughs> I'm so ashamed. I mean, I couldn't get it on the stream because I wouldn't be able to play the games I was actually working, but at least I popped up in the chat and let them know that you know, you're not streaming. <laughs> But it's a it's a nice background, even just to listen and occasionally pipe in with some snarky comment. I mean, some tips or something. Yes, we we really enjoy all of your <laughs> tips, <laughs> advice. Yeah, don't die. I mean, it's all a right. good pick. That's a really fun game. It's a, that I think is an original concept, though. Hopefully, I'm right on that one. I, I've never seen anything like like that. But there, I've been surprised before where people found a game that was done in like 1979 in the arcade that we cloned, and I had no idea. <clears throat> and I guess if people don't know what you're doing in that game, you got to grab numbers from one side and put them over top of the numbers from the other side. They're scrolling in opposite directions, and you have to avoid the bad guys. And yeah, and you can you can take the box, and all of a sudden, if a guy suddenly shows up on your moving platform and he's going to run you over because you you can't jump or anything. You can take the box and drop it on the thing's head and kill it. Now you can I also store seen... them temporarily in the middle, and then other things will come by and push them out on you. I have seen versions of this game that I think were later, but I you mean on other platforms or yeah, on other oh, platforms. Okay. I haven't. Cool. Often where it's uh, not necessarily numbers, but it's like items. It'll be like a shoe, a pair of pants shirt and you got to match them up okay you know you happen to remember what platform or what the game was called i've never not seen a clue those. i just know that it looked really familiar when i saw it but i'm sure that it was a much newer platform 
Okay. Uh, was it a game console or a home computer thing? Do you remember? I'm pretty sure it was a computer. Okay. That'd be cool. I, I mean, I'm wondering if the person took the idea from uh, the warehouse game on the Cocoa or if the same author decided to rewrite it for a platform. So I'd be kind of curious to find that out. Anyway, since we were talking about the uh, laser gun thing here, I might as well just highlight Brian Weasler because a lot of people haven't seen this in action because you need the interface and you need an actual gun and you need a CRT. So there's a lot of things going against you doing it modern times. But uh, for those who want to kind of see what the one of the games looks like, this was the second game that uh, DICOM brought out. And uh, basically you have to shoot anything coming after your wandering knight there. He's armed with a with spear or sword, but he never uses the darn thing. So it's up to you with your arrows to shoot everything else. And I can't remember how many screens there are, but there's a ton of them. And you have to eventually kill a dragon by shooting it in the heart in a cave, if I remember correctly. I've actually won the game a couple times, but in so long, I don't remember too much about it. It's not, it's not too bad. It's kind of hard getting little getting kind of a feel for the where it's uh where it's uh, shooting at there, but uh, it's kind of fun. I, I think a, a larger display might make it a little bit easier. I'm I'm using my CM8 monitor. Yeah, it's like a 13 inch monitor, so right. Yep. So I don't. Jim, I say it's a little display. like crossbow from the arcade. That is true. I've I've actually <laughs> seen crossbows. So. So is the blink when you fire, or? Yeah. That is a glitch. No, it's not a glitch. That's actually so that the gun works because of the way it works. No, the the graphics you can see it's glitched. It's shifted. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh I yeah. Think, uh, I don't know. I, I it, it looks that way on my monitor as well. It's not my video capture. Mm -hmm. The sprite's good. Way. The background is broken. Yeah, the background. Yeah, I, that this was heavily copy protected, so it's possible maybe it uh, didn't get quite copied properly. I do have the originals. I'll have to check to see if it works properly in mine. Maybe I'll have to bring it to the next fest and. Mr. Ladd can use his magical grease weasel and, and, and get it, you know, off without any glitches. <clears throat> I will mention here, too, this high score screen. It actually plays some uh, digitized music in the background while it's waiting for you to start the game. Because we can't hear it right now. Oh, yeah, don't worry, Curtis. We'll definitely grease you up for that one. Oh, God. <laughs> Did you oh, say God. this is Coco 3 game? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, because of the stuff going what on. Was the, Only 128K, uh, though. It doesn't need 512. Not, neither of them. The other, the first game for the gun, uh, Iron Force, doesn't either. Iron Force? Is that what it, Okay. I was trying to remember what the other one was there. Yeah, I might as well show it quickly, too, just so the people that have never seen the, the phaser gun games can actually see what they look like. Iron Force is a bit of an easier game to play. Iron. Uh, iron. Is yeah, just Iron. iron. Do see here. Do I need to mount this disc to disc one? Uh, Iron one is the one you boot off of. Iron two, I think, is the graphics and the boards. So you have to boot a, off the SDF. Do I have to mount that so disc? I would. Can't hurt. Yeah, I can't remember if it's hard coded for drive zero and you have to swap discs, or if it actually lets you select it. Um, let's find out here. I noticed that, uh, see, I get that green, and it seems like it's uh, that, that green blocking. It seems like it locks up on my machine, but if I hit reset, it, it clears it up, oh. and, the, and then the game continues. Well, that's weird. On a Coco 3, yeah. Okay. Yeah, mine does that, too. I like the graphics, so. Yeah, the graphics, as you can see here, were done by Kevin Hoare. 
And uh, if you guys have played F-16 Assault, uh, he wrote that game for the Coco 1 and 2. I guess it does look like the drive. Graphics. There we go. One. One. Yep. Insert graphic disk enter. Okay. I've never played this game before, so it's going to be... Uh... <laughs> Check the dub in this case. It's the same same methodology of the, as the other one. Oh, Okay. Oh, there we go. Like, don't shoot him. <laughs> oh, but don't the shoot him. The dub of peace, and he goes and blasts it right out of the sky. Okay. So I got I to gotta get all the evil stuff around it then? Before it ki- they okay. kill the dub, because they can kill the dub too. Oh, okay. <laughs> the only thing that comes to mind is, I come in peace. And you oh, go oh. in pieces. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks I'll like Brian's trying get... to shoot for lunch here or something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, look at that uh, skull guy there. This is this is much faster. Move. Whoop. This is much. Yeah, faster it's a, it's a simpler game, um, and a lot less going behind and in front of things compared to the other one. But it it doesn't make quite as much sense because you're seeing like planets and stuff here, and like a, a creature will go behind a planet. So how big is your friggin' dove then? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, a it's space perspective. dove. The, the planet. Yeah, and it's are, about five thousand miles across. Yeah. <laughs> Well, th- those are in the foreground. That's just the background. Those are, you know. Well, you watch some away. of the shapes. Uh, some of the creatures actually go behind them, though. Oh, okay. Mm. That's that's the part that always was a bit weird. I mean, it it it, it still looks cool, nope. but yeah, this could be a lot of fun. I think I could probably get my son to play this one. Uh, I'll have to definitely uh, maybe I'll bring this to. Well, if, if David has it re- uh, going uh, by next year, I'll. Uh, well, definitely have to get a setup like this at Coco Fest next year. Let people sit there and play this during the. Yeah, I know. Henry, was it Henry Reitfeld brought it to Coco Fest? I think before COVID at some point, okay. somebody had brought it by, and I, I didn't bring mine. But last, oh, there year. you go. Now you get to see level two, which I think is the actual force now. No, oh, they're still in the mountain peaks first. Henry had this at uh, Coco Fest last year. Was Did it last he? year? Okay, okay. yeah, because I actually got to try playing it. Yeah, they did really good graphics on this. The backgrounds are on both of them are are very well done. So are all the the sprites. Gameplay, I mean, once you get used to it, it's fairly simple. It's protect something by shooting everything else, basically. But it definitely gets harder as you go. I mean, I'm not even really like looking down the barrel, so to speak. I'm just kind of holding it in front of me, but you kind of get a sense of of where, you know, of where to be on the screen there. Speeds up when there's less on the screen, too. Yeah, it does. Might get to level three. Now, I haven't noticed on some of these, do you have to hit them more than once in order to to get them to destroy them? Oh, I'm trying to remember. Level complete. There we go. Oh, back to the planets. Oh, right. It alternates. It goes uh, back to the first, then you go up to the next planet, which is a different, like the first one's mountains. The next one's got these iron pillars, if I remember. Right. <clears throat> Nick, is this giving you ideas for Nutrid 17? James, there is no to... audio coming through on this, just just you know, but uh, you should be able to hear us talk. So if you can't hear us, is... he won't he won't notice. All oh. I need to do is add a add a duck in Nutroid and that's oh, it. game over. Yeah, you got it. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Great score. You Enter go. your name. Mm, a cocoa duck hunt comes to mind. 
Yeah, there's one thing they changed between Iron Force and Medieval Madness. So Iron Force, you type in your name, your initials or your name, you know, manually with the keyboard on Medieval Madness, which actually takes three discs instead of two. You actually shoot your initials using the gun. Hmm. Novel. So if Duck Hunt gets ported <clears throat> for this thing, um, please do the world a favor and make the dog shootable so that it will tear <laughs> off. <laughs> Shoot the damn dog. <laughs> Everyone I know who ever played Duck Hunt, the first time the dog laughs at you, you aim the gun at the screen and you're like, okay, Fido, it's over. And then it just laughs again. Nope, the dog needs to jump off the over the thing when you shoot it with the. It needs to explode like the dove feathers. Head over heels away from you, yeah. <laughs> but I'll have to I'll have to talk to David and find out what kind of uh, things he's finding wrong with the guns because I have two guns, and uh, one of them works and the other one does not. Um, the trigger works on the one gun, but. Uh, um, I don't think the light sensor on the inside is working correctly. So I don't know if it's uh, on the uh, on the connector end. So I might reach out to David and find out what uh, what he's doing to get some of these working. Does yeah. Brian Dickless or Dickle? Uh, for the duck hunt, would it be funnier for the dog? Every time you shoot it, you shoot off one of his feet, legs, or something like that, and he keeps running, but with minus that uh, limb. <laughs> And he ends up like the knight in the Monty Python movie. It yep. jumps up with one ear and then no ears. And... <laughs> Just but a scratch. Now, this, these, are, these are very visually good games as far as that. I mean, the gameplay is a little bit simplistic because of the limitations of the gun, obviously. But uh... I kind of feel like the red mm -hmm. or that's red thing right there. Sometimes I feel like I have to hit that one twice, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just. Yeah, I honestly can't remember. I haven't played these in a while, to be honest. Ooh. That blue swirly <laughs> thing is tough. It 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 moves pretty fast, so but uh no yeah, this is a lot of fun. Ooh. I think I think there'll be a lot of people that'll be happy and David gets that board out there. So Yeah. Yeah. And somebody last week was speculating that if you, you had a pie or something, you might be able to fake returning the right signals without having to use a shared T because that would be fast okay. enough to keep up with the video and you could write some underlying thing that would kind of cross right. cross the streams, I guess. I don't know how to describe it. That you could technically get it working with an LCD. You just need this pie or something to be running in the background to kind of simulate the signals coming back and forth. Well, the yeah, pie they've done that with the NES. Oh, so that's already been done at some point? David? Yes, there's someone's used to pie with a little rig that goes over the end of the light gun that then you uh, use with the pie and it, uh, LCD TV. But I think it uses some of the technology from the Wiimotes, um, how you use a infrared bar on the top of your your TV or on the bottom and you calibrate it so it knows the up left and up right and bottom left and bottom right so you, you have the X and Ys and then it computes it. So does it, it basically once you do this little pie thing then it uh, 
it it runs everything in backwards compatible. Like the the programs themselves on the NES have no idea that you're not using. As far as I know, I didn't really look at the project that closely because it. Okay. That'd be cool if if we can get it running with modern LCD TVs and stuff. That would be awesome because that's what most of us. Or the majority, maybe not most, but I'd say the majority of us are using these days. If we're using real hardware at all. Do you think the screen is stretched in the um, vertical a little bit? Because none of the circles are round. No, this looks like standard four by three. Well, when the game comes back on, look at the, you know, the planets and stuff. They're oval. See, they're not round. That might be my video capture because it looks correct on my on my uh, CM8. Okay. Right. Getting four by three out of a capture card is impossible. I've given up. You get what you get. But the colors are really nice. Yeah. Yeah. This is one that really shines in RGB versus composite. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, I just I was kind of fiddling with it while you guys were doing the game on. I thought maybe And it just like worked. It. <laughs> yeah, it just worked. Yep. I just plugged it in, everything just worked. So yeah. Yep. A lot of fun. Yeah. Obviously so, there's there's digitized sound effects and stuff too in both games and some digitized music in medieval madness too that we're not hearing, but So we haven't yeah, seen I'll, the forest yet. I'll have to nope. figure out a way to get uh, get audio. How do you guys do, uh, Not to, as I guess as a side note, but how do you guys, uh, when you're doing video capture like this off of real hardware, how are you guys capturing the audio? On mine, there's an audio input jack on the capture thing that you mm-hmm. can run to the audio out of the Coco, and that's okay. what I do. Okay. It's just a whole separate to a earphone jack that goes mm-hmm. into the capture device. Okay. I'll play around with that. Okay. Thanks for showing us that, Brian, because I know a lot of people have not seen that now that we actually look like we have a reproduction of the adapter and, uh, you know, picking up some older guns and fixing them up. It looks like it might be something that might be available for purchase again. So, yep. and uh, a much of thanks to uh, Tim Linder. If actually, I was going to mention that too, because um, uh, David Craker actually sent me a correction. I uh, said uh, in the show notes, for the, we were, uh, I was mentioning that David Craker, uh, I mentioned that he was the one who wrote the test program. Actually, it was not. It was Tim that wrote the the test program for testing the gun and the interface. So that's a correction. Uh, David was just using Tim's program to do the testing. So much of thanks to Tim. And since Tim obviously has written his own blog post on, on recreating them from years back and fully understands how to program for it, I might have to take a look at see what uh, is in there and maybe it's possible to write like a background driver in ML that you could actually write a basic game. A simpler basic game that actually uses the gun, which would be kind of cool. I don't know right. if it's fast enough to do that, but uh, there's not a heck of a lot moving on the screen if you're just shooting targets. You might be able to do it. Right. Okay. So uh, do you want me to just go straight into the game on news, or did you want to do the little intro right, we'll thingy? Do, we'll do the intro. When you want the latest in TRS-80, Tandy... 
Dragon, MC-10, and all of their hardware cousins. No matter what it takes. For where news breaks. From around the world. To your nation. The Coco Nation News. With L. Curtis Boyle. That was a real life of me soldering too. That wasn't like an animation somebody did. <laughs> hey, so doing the game on news first. <clears throat> so of course Jim Gary's been busy when it's it's a pretty rare time that he's not. So we got a multiple things here. So the first one is 3D MC Chase, which is a game he's done before, but this has now been redone with Greg Dion's basic compiler, so it runs a couple times faster. Um, he also added support for the MC10 joypad which uh, we've demonstrated on the show before, and he added key repeats so you can actually hold the keys down or the joypad down rather than just uh, having to tap it individually each time. And you'll see here it takes place at the Heron Point Convention Center, which is, of course, uh, where Coco Fest was actually you know held up until recently. I don't know if it has elevators that bust down, but... <laughs> but it's actually running at a pretty good clip for a little 3D... 3D game, you got the maze on the right, and you kind of see where you are and the baddie is, and then uh, you fill in dots rather than eat them. And then you get the 3D perspective on the left. So not a bad little uh, compiled basic game, the MC-10. Next up, we have Missile Attack, uh, which he also has updated, uh, compiling it. Yeah, he's now he, this game uses the SG6 mode, which is a little bit higher res but less colors. So it's 64 by 48 instead of 64 by 32, but only four colors, I think, or three. Can't remember. Um, he's also updated this to have full eight way versus the original four way because the in key routine in basic just lets you have one key at a time. So if you hold two keys, it doesn't register as two. So he's using that technique uh, for reading the keys simultaneously so you can actually get the diagonals working. And uh, he's using a different palette uh, as an option here, so you can actually switch whatever colors you like. Um, and it's basically a Missile Command-style game, so I'll play a little bit of that. You can kind of see what that is. So you see the line drawing routine is actually fairly fast, and I think that was Greg Dion's work. Because there is no line function in regular MC10 Basic or original color Basic. The missiles are the purple dots coming down. The red is your cursor. The orange is the explosion. So basically, it'll explode and then sit there for a bit. And if the missile hits that, then it, it blows up. And you got to protect your cities at the bottom. So that's basically what's coming I think, did he do an alternate? Yeah. And you have this color set, too, if you want to change it up a bit. I think I like this one better myself, but... Next up after that, we have uh, Frogger in Basic. So Jim did an update to this one as well, featuring the new key input routine, like holding down the keys to keep jumping. Uh, some minor optimizations and speed ups and adding a jump sound. So this one, I think he did a bit more recently, the original version. So this one just you know has some improvements on it. You 
here it's drawing all the graphics so to kind of show things and then some skill levels. And we'll let uh, Nick critique this one since he did Jumping Joey, which is another Frogger style game. See what he thinks of it. Not as good as Neutroid, but yeah, pretty good. <laughs> no, it's pretty good. Yeah, you said this is compiled, is it? Compiled, I, think, I think this one's compiled. No, maybe not. New key input routine, good for some speed ups, jump sound. So, yeah, no, it's just state basic. This is not compiled. Yeah, it's pretty good for a um, MC10 in, in basic. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's using, like, for the logs and stuff, I think he's using the same trick you used on your waterfall. Or was it waterfall? Where you're kind of doing mid string of an entire pre built string. Yeah. And then you print just uh, a part of the string. Yeah. Which is much faster than you're building yeah. it every time. Not a bad game. I mean, <clears throat> the MC10's got some, you know, higher res stuff, like the 12896 mode that the MC10 supports if you have the 16K module or one of the higher, newer ones now. And, uh, of course, you can modify if you're into soldering and stuff. You can actually, you know, put some extra RAM on the motherboard and actually get right up to Pimo 4. But for one of the low-res ones, it's actually it's pretty good. Next up, I won't play too much out of these here. I'll just mention them. Uh, there's a lot of Cocoa stuff. Like right now, uh, Jeff's covering March of 1982. So I sent him a whole list of stuff here, and he's actually been kind of going through them all. So the first one here, he covers uh, Card Games by Tandy, which is actually a, one of the few basic, uh, written in basic games that uh, Tandy sold. is by James Garon of Datasoft, six card games, mostly for kids. Though poker and stuff, I probably would say it's not quite for kids. Uh, Color Computer Dancing Devil, which was the first machine language game slash program that Chris Latham did. Later on, of course, he did Donkey King and Sailor Man. Cosmic Super Bowl by Spectral Associates, which is a very simple football game that is basically, I guess if you played the original handheld Mattel football from the late 70s, it's kind of like that on the computer. And then one I will show a little bit of here is called Amazing, because we were just talking about maze generation stuff here. And this is one that actually came off of... Uh, I think it was Chroma set right here. Eighty-two, and this is amazing for the TRS eighty color computer. So it does a standard random maze thing, but it actually does a three D perspective with filled in, and this is all basic. There's no machine language in here. Our first release that came out at some point in March nineteen eighty-two. This one we're going to be running in basic. Amazing. Now fast forward a bit here because it does <laughs> take it a while to exactly generate the, the maze. Um, I will perspective. Or as they said in 1982, we saw it actually has a point system here. So if you, if you cheat and have to look at the map the or your compass, which gives you what direction you're facing, you, you actually were, lose points. Uh, oh, now I remember. What, now I forget what it was. It was like seeing the, seeing the game through the eyes as if you were there. They didn't say first person. Okay, so we begin here. If we go F to move forward, we'll move forward, and we just creep along. The very beginning of 1982, we saw Monster Chase on the ZX81. They gave you the goal. I'm going to turn right. They gave you the goal of the monsters coming after you. 
and is I would say that's the, the now, obviously this is a much simpler game than the one he's talking about there, um, which is you know a world famous one. But for basic and doing filled in walls and hallways as opposed to just the you know standard wireframe that we're used to seeing in this time period, for basic game I thought this was actually quite good. Um, you know, it, he's obviously double buffering, so you don't get to watch it draw all the stuff and actually just plops the frame when it's finished rendering. But you know, it's it's generating a frame in like a second, so. I, I didn't think this was bad at all. I was wondering, what, what do you think, uh, Alan, if you're still on the call? Since you actually were just researching May's stuff recently. I love that version, by the way. Yes. Have, have you tried this one before? Yes. Yeah, the uh, the 3D view that looks like anything like Dungeons of Daggerath has mm -hmm. always been on the radar. <laughs> this, is a, this is a great place to pause. Look how you've illustrated the different levels that are visible. It's not quite so squared off as some maze programs were back then. Like you can see the right wall extends about three quarters of the way down without having to have little defined cubes to show it's 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 very 3D. Yeah, it's, yeah the 3D yeah. part of this is uh, is really good, especially with the color cue, so that you know uh, once you know your compass direction, you can keep up with it after that. Yeah, and you it actually has some audio pitches too. So every time you move a space, if you're getting closer to the exit, it raises in pitch, and if you start going away from the exit, it actually lowers in pitch. So you can kind of figure out like sometimes you have to go away to get around a corner or something to get to the end, but it actually has some audio cues that you can try to use so you don't have to cheat, quote unquote, and lose points by either bringing up the map, which every time you do that's minus five, or bring up the compass points, which draws a little N and WSE on the bottom middle to tell you what direction you're facing type thing. So it's, I thought it was pretty well done. It was just, you know, one of the magazine, uh, Chromoset magazine tape games that you came, you played your subscription, you got a tape with five to 10 programs every month, just like, you know, a rainbow on tape or rainbow on disc. And this, this was actually, I think, one of the first maze style of programs that actually i was a bit impressed by um because this came out in well march of 82 i guess but uh you know it came out way before Daggerath did for example and before say phantom slayer or even escape by ken Kalish, i think that came out then late well actually i think that one might have came out roughly the same time actually he covers it a little bit later so we can show that if you want to see that <clears throat> This next episode here, he went through the second issue of Electronic Games and what they did in this particular issue. And this is a magazine I remember getting as a kid because it was one of the very few video game magazines that actually covered the Coco in its first you know, half month to a year of its existence. It actually covered it fairly extensively. It covered like football and Quasar Commander and skiing and Dino Wars and some other games, too. So it was one of the few that actually, you know, believed that something besides the Atari and the Apple existed or the VIC-20. I tried to cover some other uh, more, obs I guess, um, obscure might be too strong of a word, but some of the you know lesser known ones. Um, but this one here, they actually had their awards for what they were figuring were the best games of 1981, because, of course, this is published in early 82. And uh, Jeff kind of critiqued some of those. So they, you know, they have, um, you know, categories for different types of games, whether it's an arcade or a home console or a home computer. And um, it was funny because Jeff, I can't remember which one they picked off the top of my head, but for the sports game for a home computer, whatever they picked, he was not that impressed. I think it was actually a strategy football game, like not even a real time arcade style is one of the ones where you like, it's like you're coaching and you get to, you know, do it's all more text based. 
And his pick for the best game of 1981 for any sport game for any home computer out of all of them was skiing because the 3D perspective in the hills and that one, and I agree with him, that one was so far ahead of its time and, and you know, ran in real time, et cetera. So that's, and there's a few other ones where he picks a, a Coco game really high up in the, in the rankings and stuff there too. So it's a, it's a fascinating to see, thing to see what, you know, people back in 82 thought were the best. And now what Jeff thinks in modern times after trying out all these different platforms and different games are. So that's a really interesting episode. And it basically almost the entire show is just covering going through this issue of electronic games magazine and all the awards and, stuff there so definitely worth a listen or a watch uh this next one here he went through um escape by ken kalish which is another 3d maze game and uh i'll play a little clip of that because i want to mention something about the gaming graphics engine for it and then scepter of kazurgla and space raiders now space raiders was originally called space invaders when it was first released and i've never seen a copy of the original and Brian Berger, who wrote it, actually was our guest as a, an interview guest here a while back. <clears throat> but basically, he tried selling it himself through what he called, I think, Space Cadet Enterprises or something like that for the first few months. But if you're a small independent, you're going up against, you know, the upcoming Spectral Associates and Tom Mix and some of the people that already were somewhat established. He just didn't really have a hope of selling it much. But Mark Data Products actually saw the game and really liked it. And Rainbow announced in July of 82 that they were going to be taking over uh selling this game and it took them a few months because they got them to tweak a few things and they added their new splash screen and some music and stuff at the beginning but uh it's one of the better space invaders games now jeff wasn't as keen on it as i would be because he's trying to compare you know all home computers at this time and there had been you know much more advanced space invaders games for like say the apple II and stuff because they had been around for you know five years already but um uh, Basically, uh, Scepter Kazurgla is kind of a <clears throat> semi-real-time, it's low-res graphics, um, kind of a dungeon romp where you have to try to get the Scepter on level 13 of a dungeon. It's got a few interesting bits, too, like you can attack something with your sword, and your sword can get destroyed if you, you know, just a random chance to get direct. You can also uh, take out walls, which on later levels you have to, because sometimes you're trapped and you can't get to the exit to the next level. So you actually, you run into the wall and it says, you just ran into a wall. Do you wish to attack it? <laughs> you actually have to like take uh-huh. out the wall of your sword. And that sometimes takes several hits, depending on your strength. I thought that was a pretty interesting game mechanic because having destroyable terrain was definitely not common uh, in, in games of this early era. And then I want to show you a little bit of Escape. Um, so let's see what that is. We're next going to the TRS-80 color. And this was actually one of the uh, titles that was part of the Dragon's really original launch because this came out in March in the States. And then it was, I can't remember if it was Microdeal or if it was Dragon Data themselves actually brought it up for the Dragon. That's one of the launch titles. But it's using the same 3D engine, basically, as uh, Phantom Slayer, which is one of my all-time favorite games of all time. We have covered that one on the uh, Game on Challenge before. Uh, but this is basically more of a kind of an adventure style. You're wanting through a 3D maze, you can find these different little shops and things. Um, you've also got an elevator that you have to get into, but you have to figure out a five-digit code and you get all these clues and they're the forms are like riddles and stuff. And you have to uh, figure out the right five-digit codes because as soon as you type in the wrong number, the elevator plummets down to the ground and you die. So it's, it's basically the adventure part is trying to figure out what this code is from all these clues. 
And none of the clues are obvious. It's uh, like, you know, the first digit is three. It's like they give you some, you know, riddle or limerick or something like that you have to try to figure it out from. But the uh, engine itself is, is very, if you've if seen Phantom Slayer, you definitely recognize it. There are a few extra things in here like doors. Um, like here's the actual elevator itself. I don't know if I want to go, I guess we'll try the elevator. Oh, nice. You can even walk backwards. That's cool. But look how smooth this moves. Think of all the other maze games we played, or first-person perspective mazes. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, it was made in Texas. Oh, I see. And Jeff's from Texas, too, so that's why I, I pulled him out on the show. But <clears throat> So here it's saying you're on the 609 automate, automatic elevator. You must now provide the correct key, which is five-digit number. And mistakes are not tolerated, so of course he dies because he hasn't solved any of them yet. But uh, it's a hard game. Uh, Phantom Slayer, actually, to me, is easier. And Phantom Slayer is not an easy game to begin with, but... Uh, it was, it was cool that uh, you know kind of Ken kind of came up with this and then decided to reuse the engine because it worked really well. And then the last one here was one he just recorded yesterday, so he rounded out I think the last Coco game from March, uh, which is uh, Tower of Fear, which is a text adventure game with some MMO routines to like you know prevent scrolling and inverse video and things like that uh, by Charles Forsyth for the Programmers Guild, which later did stuff like Pack Droids. And Ninja Warrior, which uh, Ninja Warrior we've definitely covered on the show. I don't think we've done Pactroids. Uh, Ken, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I won't show that one because it's basically a text adventure game. It's one of the ones that's a bit more logical. Like a lot of these early text adventure games, some of the puzzles and stuff you have to solve make absolutely no sense whatsoever. You pretty well have to think like the original programmer did to figure out what the heck you're going to do. That's, this is one that's more logical and more easily solvable with you know regular thinking patterns. Rather than, you know, you have to remember, you have to wave a statue of a snake to make a bridge mag magically appear, something weird like that. So I, it's one I greatly enjoyed and actually did win back in the day myself. So he's getting close to being done March. So April, there's some more Cocoa games there. I've already sent him a list for April and May. I'm going to be doing an update to June. Then I'm going to take some time when I get far enough ahead of him to get back to all my programming projects here. But he's actually went through March a little bit faster than I was expecting. So I had to kind of double back and finish some stuff off okay next up we have a, a youtuber that I've, I've only actually found him recently we've shown him on one or two previous episodes uh, named geo Papas. i'm not sure if that's pronounced correctly down on the lower right left here um but he made some uh videos this week of showing three different versions of farfall one is the pandemic version on the dragon 32 that's john linville's original now the dragon 32 one i don't think had the the version that he's playing there here does not have the sound chip in it that John uh, made that extended version with multi-voice music and sound effects and stuff. So it's just basically the regular one. Um, it does have some sound effects for the game itself, but it doesn't have the background music and stuff here. So I'll just play a couple clips of it here at the beginning so you can kind of see what the game is if you haven't seen it before. Because the next two versions are actually done by Jim Gary. One is the MC10 version that runs in 4K. And then uh, Jim actually ported that back to the Coco, so it kind of made full circle. So the 4K version's there. Of course, it's going to be much lower res, and actually, I think it's even text-based. And of course, Nick Rennie's did one as well. And now your Waterfall game, Nick, did that work in 4K as well? I think it did, didn't it? Ah, uh, yes. Uh hang on. Oh, I can't remember. It may have. Yeah. Oh, cool. Digitized uh, voice there too that John put in. Oh, you can recognize that's actually John's voice. 
I mean, that's <clears throat> that's the well, not the original original because the digitized voice stuff. I think he added on the pandemic version, but uh, that's what the gameplay and this gameplay is based on an Atari game. Is that right, Nick? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, yeah, I forget the name, but yeah. So anyway, <clears throat> since uh, the MC10 did not have Firefall, Jim did do a port of it a while ago. So um, Joe Pappas is actually showing us that version as well. This is written entirely in basic, runs in 4K. Press enter to begin falling. That's a great way to start a game. But it's just basically text characters, and your little guy is walking between an X and a, a Y to make it look like his legs are moving. Now, there's some distortion. I don't know what was happening with his recording here, but the distortion on the sound happens at the beginning of the video, then it kind of fixes itself, and that happens on most of his videos. So I'm not sure if that's an emulator issue he had going or what. And then, of course, uh, he backported it to the Coco itself. A different pitch, and a little bit faster. I think he's using the speed of poke here. So, but essentially, the gameplay is pretty similar. I mean, there's more platforms, and they're all the same size, so that's a bit different than Farfall or Waterfall. But uh, you know, the essential gameplay of you know not getting run off the top of the screen or plummeting between platforms and dying on the bottom. Next up, uh, Jerry Young, Pitfall Jerry is his YouTube channel, and he did a gameplay video for his haunted house for the MC-10. This is originally from the book Computer Games to Play and Write from 1983, originally by Dan Iseman. So Pitfall Jerry, uh, Jerry himself here, ported this over to the MC-10 and shows you what it looks like. There's the source code listing. It's pretty small. And I'm not sure too much about the game itself. Um, I've never played this particular one. And it's basically about ghosts and you see their eyes, etc. And then the actual gameplay is going between these rooms and stuff here and finding the ghosts. So anyway, he typed that in. He's actually got it available. If you go through the notes here of the description, you can actually figure out where to get it if you want to give it a shot. Um, next up, we have Cuthbert. Oh, the only way is Cuthbert GA. Um which we've covered recently, uh, again, because we've been doing these long play videos as opposed to the short ones he did a couple years back. He added a whole bunch this week once again. Most of them he has artwork, et cetera. He's even got Escape, you know, the game we were just uh, talking about from Chronologically Gaming there. And uh, the, the 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 gameplay he does here, he knows much more of what he's doing than, than Jeff was doing because, of course, Jeff was just going in raw, never playing it before. So he actually goes and finds a lot of the clues and he finds some of these different rooms with people giving him hints and stuff. Uh, so if you want to get a bit of the gameplay to actually learn how to win the game, it's, it's not enough to win, but it's enough to at least kind of give you a clue how to find everything. And a bunch of others here. I'm not going to play any of these here, but uh, if, if you're interested in seeing the original artwork for the dragon on the tapes and on the uh, cards inside the tape inlays, as well as the gameplay itself, he's even got some more modern games in here, like Glove. That was released in the 2000s, which is the uh, gauntlet-style game for the dragon and the Coco. Uh, Stone Raider 2, which I think we covered on the show recently, too. Wizard's Quest, not to be confused with Wizard's Den. Anyway, it's, it's it's nice seeing the longer gameplay videos here because it does get to show you some more later levels in some of the games or you know a bit more advanced gameplay than just you know the quick one-minute things he was doing earlier. Next up, we have Sibling Rivalry, the AJ and Tim. And as I mentioned earlier in the show here, this is one they recorded just before the fest, I think the week before. And I'm not sure why it got rescheduled and released so late after the show, because they were actually at the end of the episode. They're 
talking about uh, meeting, uh, looking forward to meeting everybody at the show type thing. And of course, it's weeks afterwards. Um, I will warn you, this one got a little bit risque on the double entendres. So um, be forewarned if that is going to bother you. It doesn't bother me. I think it's hilarious. And of course, we play Buzzworm, which is a clone of an arcade game. And right now, my brain just blanked on what it's called. But basically, it's the uh, trailing tail thing where you have to go eat stuff in the maze. Serpentine? Yeah, is that the name of it in the arcade? Well, it was the Apple version that was called that. Because it, it's based on an arcade game originally. I've actually got it on my site. I probably should just go look it up. But <laughs> uh, one thing I... Oh, so we're good? Nibbler. Nib- yeah, thank you. That's it. Yeah, that's the arcade one. Um, one thing I hadn't realized is actually it lets you enter in a pretty long name. You'll notice that AJ's full first name is actually up in the upper right corner. And I didn't realize it actually. I just thought it did the three characters type thing. But uh, it actually lets you use a fairly large... And Tim is not too bad at it. He actually made it to some of the more bonusy stages. Um, it's a fun game. I mean, the controls were a little bit wonky, if I remember. Ken, does that? Am I remembering that right? It was kind of hard to take the corners. Yeah, it. Uh, you, you definitely had to uh, push the direction on the joystick before you got to the corner. Okay. I mean, it's a fairly simple game in concept. You know, eat the uh, little white things, and uh, every time you eat one, your tail extends, and you can't chomp on yourself so then later when your tail's getting quite long you have to like navigate the maze so you don't trap yourself so it's, it's a fun little game and actually the uh the maze designs like the actual layout of the walls etc from one of the ones i've seen the levels i've been on are exactly the same as the arcade so it's a really close clone as far as that goes but i won't play too much of it here because like i said the double entendres are flying i think this was you know heavy into the the drunk sibling part of the show. <laughs> but they were having fun. It's good fun. Uh, next up, we've got Davey's Retro Corner. Now, he's actually in the chat. So if he wants to pipe up with any uh, notes or tips or tricks or something on some of the stuff we're covering here. Um, this first one here, uh, the game, one game he actually put on this week um, is City Bomber, which I'm trying to remember there's an original game on the C64, the VIC-20, that's this is based on, where you're basically just flying a plane and you're bombing you know, buildings down and you keep getting lower and lower on the screen as you wrap around. And this is actually based as it shows here on the title screen, but for the audio listeners, uh, written by John Sharp and David Bolton originally is a type in uh, from the book, The Power of the Dragon, which is not a book I'm familiar with. So I'm kind of curious what else is in there, but he said this is his favorite game out of that book. And uh, he's back, typed it all in and, and got it going. He did a couple minor modifications to it too. Uh, I think the title screen... I get them up there. No, no, it's there. Three skill levels you can see there. It basically, I think, affects the speed and possibly the height you start at. And it kind of builds the city you have to bomb through. And you drop your missiles and you have to clean that entire board off before your plane gets too low. If you list the first 10 video games, this is one of them. Oh, it is? The whole concept of the de- decreasing thing running into the ground and bombing things is a very early, early, early game. Yeah. Now, was this originally like in the arcade in the seventies? Is that what you mean by earlier? Is this originally on a, you know, an actual computer, but even before the well, arcades became popular? Well, a video game that you could create on a home machine. This was one of the really first things you could do. And so there were a lot of games that were very similar to this because 
Yeah, I've seen like there's a commercial version of this for the Coco one and two that uses P mode four graphics with artifacts. So it would be well in any name any architecture, it would be very hard to pick who did this first because <laughs> <laughs> the one thing the in this version does that I did not remember seeing on some of the other versions I've seen is actually the plane lands after you complete it. it actually, cool. like lands on the ground and then slows down to a stop. There's a wrinkle. If you can land, you're good, eh? Yeah, I'll fast forward a bit so you don't have to wait for it to actually it's like get all the way down. Atari 2600. Yeah. So I remember at the time I had my 1K Sinclair, which was, geez, way, way, way back. I wrote a sort of a version of this for the 1K Sinclair that fit in the upper left corner of the screen and bomb things on the ground and this is what i was trying to write way back then so and there you get it well done for completing it and then the the buildings get thicker and taller etc so and now i'll switch over to the regular news let me just bring up the window Okay, um, Ken, I'll just turn the volume down on this one if you want to kind of explain what this one's about. Okay, well, um, after Coco Fest, Curtis held me hostage and dragged me all over the United States. And we ended up in Knoxville, Tennessee, where we got a sneak peek at the Vintage Geek Museum. So uh, he interviewed us for his channel, and uh, me and Curtis interviewed him for our channel or my channel. So, just basically a um, little bit of talking about the museum and some shots of uh, what you can expect if you ever are down there and what you'll get to see. And I was going to try to find the spot where all the Cocos, where he's got that pseudo classroom set up here just to show. Which we had fun with on his video he did of us playing with the electronic book. Yeah. You can see a TDP there, though, with a more modern keyboard. Even a wood grain TV is getting as close as they could yeah, to the original. Yeah, it's finally really coming together. It's really because of the upgrade to the Some mix of, you know, TPs, Coco 2s, Coco 3s, etc. Big Radio Shack sign behind you. Yeah, and they even have the gift those. one. Yeah. yeah, the gift one was one I'd not seen before. Have you seen that before, Ken? No, I hadn't seen that before. I'm not sure where that is, just in case I want to show it to anybody else who wants to see it. Uh, it's forward a bit in the video, near the end, I think. Oh, maybe not. I can't remember where I put it. Apple stuff. But basically, it was like a Christmas promo where they actually had a, you know, Radio Shack gift and it actually had like a picture of a present on it. Also, there's uh, some quick introductions by the people, other people besides, you know, the public face of the museum, which is Aaron here, obviously. But he's got, you know, three other people working with him. He's got a videographer and a person that's kind of in charge of acquisitions and stuff and a technical person that does a lot of the repairs, et cetera. So he, he's got full staff for this. It's uh, it's pretty cool. And as we mentioned uh, when we were showing uh, Aaron's own video when he was interviewing us, they actually have officially opened to bookings in public as of May 1st. So if you're in the Knoxville, Tennessee area, you can actually go on their website 
and you can you know book an appointment. Their ultimate goal, as he explains, and here is that they eventually want to have you can actually rent time out, not you know paying for it per se, but uh, you know get time allotted if you want to try one of these old computers. Because the other thing that we mentioned before is that he wants us to be interactive, uh, where people can actually try the computers out. You're not just looking at stuff under glass or anything. And uh, if you want some you know, obscure old computer you've never tried, but you actually want to try it for half an hour, you can, he's actually planning on having it available so you can actually book, you know, I want to run a Tier City Model 1 for half an hour or uh, an Odyssey 1 or whatever it happens to be. And he's got some pretty weird old stuff in here, like that record player-based thing from the 60s. Mm-hmm. So um, definitely go check that out on Ken's channel, Canadian Retro Things on YouTube. It's, uh, it's a good interview and you get a, lot, a bit some background stuff of, you know, how he got the idea for the museum, where he originally planned on taking it, where it's going now, et cetera. Um, and plus you get to meet some of the people that are also involved with it besides just Aaron himself. And uh, I, I think it was definitely worth it. He even has a thing where if you want to become a supporter by chipping in a little bit of money, it's not a ton he's asking for, then you can get like admission to the museum for half price, et cetera. And um, they're still expanding. They're still, they're still getting stuff. I do know that Aaron and Jason Timmons from VCF Midwest have actually gotten in contact with each other. And uh, once Jason finishes going through a bunch of stuff and he figures out what he's got extras of, Aaron already knows some of the stuff he's got extras of. And there's some stuff that are mutually you know, missing from each other's collection. So I'm, it sounds like they will be able to collaborate and actually fill in some of the gaps of stuff that they don't have between the two of them so that both VCF Midwest and the museum, the Vintage Geek Museum, will get you know more more in their displays than they would have otherwise. It looks like it'll be a good collaboration between the two of them. So, and here's another one. Ken's been busy this week. He's you know helped host the Game On Challenge here, and then he's got two videos he cranked out here. So I'll let Ken explain this one. Hey there. Yeah, I'm basically just... proof I have no life. <laughs> <laughs> So I um, uh, picked up the Quiet Click keyboard from uh, Rick in at CocoFest. So I put it into my other Coco 3 here to try it out. And actually, I've liked it so much that I've actually switched the keyboards. Um, the Quiet Click one now is, is now in my daily use um, computer so that when I'm on the air and stuff like that, there's not quite so much clicking when I type stuff. So... Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, when you when you when you actually compared the 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 volume, like, you first did it from the mic when you still had it, yeah, you know, with you sitting, and then you put the mic like right up to the keyboard, which I think was probably a little bit too close because it still bit, sounds. Yeah. It, but uh, like in real life, well, how how much quieter is it? And maybe Rick, you can you can jump in here too for that. Quite a bit. It's. Like, yeah, I, uh, th- I think his mic at a distance is the perfect capture of what other people hear. What yeah. you hear when you're typing it is quite different. If you like a clicky keyboard, the, the loud one sounds great when you're typing on it. But other people in the room with you hear what Ken's mic heard at that first comparison that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really just put the microphone that close to so that you could actually hear that the quiet click one is still clicking. It's... Not. Yeah, it doesn't disappear like it. Yeah. No, it's it's a mechanical keyboard. It's going to sound like that. So, I mean, it definitely sounds different. I will say that. Like you can tell the difference. Yeah, like um, right now I have the uh, Quiet Click keyboard right beside me, and I'm pushing the buttons on it right beside my microphone. 
And I can faintly hear it, but it's not like that. Like I've got the Ed Snyder, the really clickable yeah. one too, like the loud version. So I could actually confidently type on this one while I've got my microphone open and not worry that it's distracting. So. Okay. Sweet. So you're a happy customer. I'm a happy customer. I mean, I like them both. Don't get me wrong. I love if I'm just typing stuff to for fun. I like the uh, sound of the really clicky one, but. DigiKey order. Get more switches. <laughs> I, I was going to ask, Rick, like, since you've started offering both the original, like, mass, massive click or whatever you want to call the original, the louder one, and then the yeah. quieter keys, have you noticed a trend either way as far as what people are buying from you? Well, the problem is there's no word of mouth, so people like the clicky one because, yeah, I want a clicky keyboard. But do they really want a clicky one? There is Ken. <laughs> Or that click leading the uh, you know leading a new path. We don't know yet. Well, as soon as I get my um, my twenty percent, we'll know how well it's doing. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's coming. It's coming. (laughs) Just let us know when they're back in stock. Oh, they're in stock. If it ain't in stock, it'll be in stock tomorrow. I've got like seven models, but I can go solder up any given one at any given time. So. Yeah, that, that's something we should mention because this doesn't just cover the Coco 3 as pictured here. This covers Coco 2 Melted, Coco 2 Full Travel, Coco 1 Chiclet, uh, several of them, I think. Have, well, have you got every model covered now? With a, with a plastic pin. Um, yeah, they're all listed on my website, except for I don't think I'm going to formally release this one. I don't like the way it works. I don't. Right, we can't to, see what you're showing here. So what? Oh, what this, you... this is the the uh, melted plastic keyboard that is held together in the back with. Here, I'll stop sharing pins. so we can see what you're talking about here for the so, stream. Uh, um, I don't have a proper one in front of me. It's this keyboard. Okay. Uh, that doesn't have mylar. That well, that has mylar and has plastic pins that are just melted to hold it together. That's the it's got the brown uh, phenolic uh, backing. Correct. Yeah, and I just don't like the way this works. I don't think I'm going to release it. I'm going to um, take care of a couple of people that helped me get it built, and then uh, we'll see where to go. But other than that one, as far as all the other chiclet keys and the melty key that has the melted the uh, melted back on it, and the Coco two and three full travel. So I've got like six. Six versions if you don't count clicky and not clicky. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. No, it sounds like Ken's a happy customer. And I am I was surprised he picked the uh, the quieter one as being his favorite. So I definitely want to try this out. And I didn't get a chance to try it out the fest here. And I've always liked, like, the what is it, the IBM 5150 keyboard, which is, like, one of the loudest ones known to man. Just oh, right. I, I wouldn't for. really say that um, I've chosen my favorite. It's like your kids. You you can't really say which one's your favorite, but there's the one you would rather have out in public. <laughs> and the one that's more fun to... <laughs> the one that you want to keep at home, and then there's the one yeah. that you're not... Locked in the basement in and uh, you know, feeding it bread and water. <laughs> I take this one to the park. I take this one to the library. Yeah. <laughs> It sounds like I have a cold. I've got to put some back feet into these headphones so I can talk properly. Sorry, folks. Yeah, you sound fine to us. 
Okay. So the next one here, Coco Town, which is that newer channel that he's been doing some stuff on, uh, you know, some graphic things he was doing. He's done stuff on, you know, figuring out how to do cheat pokes and stuff like Donkey King. Um, he's done a couple other little videos here, uh, basically going through, um, you know, some animations using steps of drawing lines, you know, to get the Moria patterns, etc. Now, I, I believe if I remember correctly, this is not running real time speed on the Coco. He's actually like, you know, saved the screenshots and then kind of made a video afterwards. I don't, I'm pretty sure it doesn't run this fast anyway. This, this beginning that? part's running at the regular speed, but. Who is this? Uh, Coco Town's name of the channel, and I, he was not at the fest. Um, he just kind of popped up right after the fest happened, actually, just by coincidence. And he's been doing multiple Coco videos a week, so I'm going to have to invite him to get into the Discord here. I've chatted with him a little bit on the YouTube comments. Oops, fast forward a bit. Goes through a little bit of the coding of getting this to work. But these are kind of, like, kind of nice screensaver style things. He's using uh, legally permissible music. But just some pretty neat patterns. Like I said, that's not running in, in real time. He's kind of like saving the screenshots and going. But if you wanted to see what a, like a 50 megahertz Coco 3 or Coco 1 or 2 would have ran like. <laughs> and then he did a sequel uh, where he did some other, other patterns and stuff here. Actually, are kind of soothing, I have to say, and you know the music uh, he's picked in the background is kind of soothing too. So it's a good way to to veg out without having to go completely brain dead, like you have to what listening to the news all darn afternoon. Oh, I was hoping this would fix itself. Uh, Alan Huffman actually had an update on his blog, but unfortunately, it looks like uh, WordPress is down for some stupid reason, or at least his version or his uh, site on WordPress is. He had a blog entry about inverse video on the Coco. Um, he goes through the hardware options for because there's a pin on the VDG that you can, uh, I think you have to pull it out of the socket to force inverse video. And then it also had to program him, programmatically do it with the inverse video bit that the T1 VDG has. And then he also shows you how to do inverse the screen manually in a basic program. And then does his standard, you know, a lot of basic optimizations to uh, speed it up. And I think he managed to cut hit, the original time down in half. Hit the try again button. Yeah, let's see what happened. Yeah, I'm just going to spinning dot at the bottom. I had the same problem this morning when I was setting things up. Uh, and I just looked at it yesterday. It was fine. So Is it because you have an apple? No. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's it. No, it's not because I accidentally had Neutroid running on this machine earlier either. So, <laughs> someone will come in Monday morning and kick you with the Quick, someone grab a grease weasel to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, question from Salvador Garcia. Uh, I had to step away from a second. What was Rick Yulin talking about? Does he have a keyboard? If so, where can I get more info? And then Mark responded, and this is just for anybody else who's just listening. Um, you can hit Rick's website at computerconnect.com. Computer Connect's all one word, and connect is purposely spelt wrong with just one N. And it's on the scroll on the on the show. Yep. If you if you are watching, yes, that is true. I, I was trying to do that for the audio listeners. 
Ah, they got to watch. Yeah, I, so it's highly recommended. Know. We're a very visual show, but well, sometimes well, you, you don't just don't have a choice. If you don't know where it is, it's where uh, <laughs> WeFax goes across. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next well, up, we got Terry. <laughs> TSA Retro Programming on YouTube. It's, he's, he's been working on the multiple games. He's doing that kind of Ultima-style Ultima game in basic, and he's also doing that Tales of Suburbia. <clears throat> and like Nick Marentes and some other people, that you know, once you get really heavily into a game, you kind of get burned out for a little bit or you hit a problem, and then you you need to do a bit of a break. So he did a break here and just kind of spontaneously did a you know animating an arrow in basic going across the screen. So I'll just play a little clip of it. He kind of goes through the code oh, and speeding it up. Fast. It could go a little faster if I took the timer out. But but basically just uh, you know, just a little side project just to experiment with some things that he wanted to try out, which I think a lot of us that do programming end up doing at some point. Um, I know, Nick, you talked rather extensively last week about the in fact sometimes you just have to sleep on a problem. You just you can't keep hammering at it. And you if once you yeah. sleep, you know, you know. Nine times out of ten, all of a sudden the, the solution's there. When you wake up, your brain has had time to process it. And other times, you yeah. just need a break and you do a side project, like you did with Waterfall during was it Gunstar you were working on at that time? I think it was. Yeah. No, tell yeah. him it was Neutroid. Please tell him it was. Neutroid. No, no, please. Well, Neutroid's <laughs> always the answer. Um. Yeah, Neutroid's a side project he's been working on since 1984 <laughs> and still hasn't gotten it right yet. <laughs> Some people that just joined us are going to wonder, wonder what we're what the hell is he talking about? about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, honestly, uh, Nick Nick did it right the first time on the model one and three. That's still the best version of Detroit. So if he can get the Coco version working close to that, which is what he's working on with some extra stuff, I don't know if he wants to talk about yet. But uh, actually, I think it will be vastly improved because it's a it was a little bit too vague i guess on its principle on the cocoa version yeah. but you should really work on the other project more i think <laughs> 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 and i'm sure ken would agree with me too since he's one of the few that knows what that is now we've also picked up some more cocoa fest videos um <clears throat> thanks to David Ladd, I think, found one of these for sure. Um, I can't remember if this is the one you found, David. Actually, David, you found two, I think, if I remember correctly. What did I do? I didn't do anything. You, you, you found some the video, wrong person. You found some further <laughs> videos about Coco Fest 2023, but not from the usual suspects. So the first one here is from the Wisconsin Computer Club. Now, this I don't recognize the guy's voice, so I don't even know if I got a chance to meet him. I have no idea what it looks like, um, but he was... Came, they, I guess they sponsor their own show. The Wisconsin Computer Club does their own retro show, which covers multiple platforms. So you did kind of a comparison as well, taking screenshots and, or, or sorry, uh, pictures of the show floor, et cetera, for Cocoa Fest. But he was kind of comparing how we do stuff compared to how they're doing stuff. And they their show is much younger. Obviously, Glenside's been doing the Cocoa Fest, you know, since 1992, along with, you know, Dave and Nancy Myers from Cocoa Pro the first year and then on their own after. And they also helped with the Rainbow Fest organization from, I remember, uh, when Rainbow Magazine was the main sponsor. So they've been doing it for, you know, almost the entire length of the Coco itself. 40 years as of uh, this past one that just went by. So I'll play a little clip of this here. But does anybody, if you guys recognize the voice, did any of you meet this person uh, and talk to them at all? Hello, Alex here. And today I want to talk a little bit about... Coco Fest, uh, Coco Fest 31. His name is Alex, if that rings a bell with anybody. Edition. 
and just the uh, the show, what it was like to experience it. Um, this is my first year going. Uh, every other time I've tried to go in the past has either been stymied by COVID or my crazy work schedule. So I got this little reprieve that I could go today. Yeah, all I know is that the one photo of where I was at, I, it, the I photo makes me look fatter. What I saw, uh, explain kind of why that one? Went, yeah, a little squished. And um, how that kind of translates over to the Wisconsin. Yeah, John, not flattering for John that, either. Um, it was really just... Any of us, actually. I'm not too bad because I'm way in the back corner. You can just barely see my head. So. Right on in here. I've got a whole bunch of uh, photos to share with you. So I'll just. But does anybody recognize the voice? Because he was actually he went around and apparently from his description, he actually did talk to a few people at the show. I, I don't recognize the voice, and I was you know sometimes I was in seminars, etc. So I just might have missed him, but I no, don't. not at all. His name Alvin. Mm. <laughs> well, his name's Alex. I think he said. Oh, Al Alex. That's which is too bad. I mean, if if they had a, another, you know, a computer club there that does retro, I would have loved to, you know, talk to them about that and maybe mm. see what their show's like. And since I live in Milwaukee, yeah, maybe, but I never caught the guy. Okay. And I'm trying to, like, from looking at the pictures here, I'm trying to figure out if he was there on the Saturday or the Sunday. I, I think that looks like the Saturday, but I'm not positive. I can tell if I see my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> it was Saturday. David Ladd wore a yellow, optic yellow on. Saturday and orange on Sunday. Ah. Mark, are you paying attention to my wardrobe? Who? Me? <laughs> no. Because <laughs> he has to change Who the can, sunglasses. can't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> but he got some really good photos and stuff there. And like I said, he mentioned that he talked to some multiple people. I was just wondering if anybody on the panel that was there as well you know, I remember talking to him. Someone might have him come on the show and talk about his club too. I mean, like you, like you mentioned, uh, Rick, you're in Wisconsin, and Wisconsin's like right next door to Illinois. So, depending on where in Wisconsin, that might be something that some of the people it's, in Chicago yeah. area could hit up. Kind of yeah. right next door to Milwaukee too. So, yeah. And brother Jeremy used to be there too. That's something I was discussing with Sean Driscoll, um, who was in the chat earlier, because uh, he was good friends with brother Jeremy. Because brother Jeremy actually added on to the GUI B library after uh, Sean finished working on it. And uh, he was in Racine, Wisconsin. Right. He was a good intermediary. He came up to came up here for the off the hawk, the occasional Friday night OS9 hanging out club. And then he also went to Chicago to catch all of the Glenside stuff. So we exchanged well, a lot of things through Brother Jeremy back then. If he still has the cocoa in his blood, he's probably watching this somewhere. And just come on and, the show. And of course, that's a good uh, view of. Uh, um, well, it was a good view of uh, uh, Paul Fiscarelli's uh, Tandy sign. Yeah. But yeah, I'd be interested uh, to maybe get in contact. So if he's watching this, if he if he hears that he's been featured on here, I'd love to get him in contact with us and maybe have him on the show for a bit and talk about the Wisconsin Computer Club, because that's not one I was even aware of before. And it sounds like, Rick, you weren't either. No, <laughs> I'm almost there. <laughs> anyway, there's some really good photos he took there of the the show floor and some of the various projects and booths too. Uh, next up, this is one that uh, I think David. This is another one you sent me, and uh, I'm trying to remember possibly. who did this one. Trying to remember who did this one here because basically it's it's. A quick less than three minute video about the Folk Coco Fest, which has a custom song, which I think you described as a little bit odd. <laughs> and also some you know, live singing from Taylor, Amy, and AJ, of course, from the Saturday Night Jam session. Um, 
I'll, I'll play a little clip of it. I'm not going to play the whole thing here. It's got some photos and stuff as well. I have no idea if this is uh, legal music, so I'm going to stop it there. But <laughs> um, yeah, it does a little bit of it, like just random clips of some Coco stuff, and then you know, shows the Taylor and Amy show along with AJ uh, during the jam session, and then kind of goes through some of the booths, you know, just doing stock photos. And I think it's this is one of the guys from Brazil or Colombia or something. I think is the one they did this. Um, yeah, I think so. The music sounded sense. like it would be. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. A little bit of a different presentation of covering a Coco Fest than I think I've ever seen before. Um, so it's interesting just to see a, a different perspective of it, I guess. And this is one I just kind of stumbled onto by accident. So somebody named Retro Dream on YouTube did a uh, kind of a 3D animated timeline going through early home computers here. Um, so I've got it fast forwarded right now to 1980, which is when the Coco One came out. Now there's some obvious mistakes. You can see that that's a Coco Two colored case, um, and it, kind of the Coco Two uh, case itself that it has a chiclet keyboard. Kind of, I'm not quite sure. So I don't know if they're trying to mix things up. There's no mention of the Coco Two or the Coco Three in this, so it's it's a bit incomplete. Um, and I noticed some mistakes and some other things like they have the Dragon 32 and 64 in there, but they had the sales figures as being a total of 50,000, which is way, way low from what the actual was. Yeah, it uh, says that continued in 83. Well, with the Coco One, that is true because the 64K color computer, but the white melted keyboard one, did end the line of the color computer one. The Coco Two came out in 83 and kind of took over. But, it but says they don't. They had 512K RAM. Yeah, that's wrong because that's Coco Three. They're saying 256 by 192 is 16 colors. Well, no, that's wrong too. Um, yeah, 256 by is the right res, but it was like two color or four color with artifacting. Four voice sound only if you added in extra hardware. Um, I like the concept though. I'll just play a little bit here. I mean, obviously some of the facts are wrong, and he obviously knows some of their computers better than others. But the way he has it, kind of, I'll just, uh, I don't know if this has copyrighted music. I have no text to be heard, but. He kind of does a sliding thing. He actually has screenshots on the, the monitors of actual software from those particular platforms, which is kind of cool. So the presentation is really well done. I really like that. And you can pause it whenever you want to check out some certain things, even as you can jump to a year on the timeline here if you want to check out a specific year when something is released. But factually, there's... Flickering on the monitor, too. Yeah. Yeah, he's trying to get everything basically is, you know proper for each the time period and for each of the machines but there's some obvious mistakes and i think the trs 80s probably suffered a bit more than some of the other ones here probably because you know the coco isn't as well known as say a c64 or vic 20 but it's a, it's a nicely done presentation here you can see the dragon here so this one factually is a bit better 32 to 64k that is correct 256.182 four colors that's technically correct with artifacting one voice sound correct but units sold is fifty thousand. That's that's not even close. There was three hundred fifty thousand at least of the Dragon Thirty Two alone that I know of, and um, at least you know fifty thousand of the Dragon Sixty Four. So I mean, it's four hundred K. That should be, if not a bit higher, uh, just by going through the serial numbers that everybody's contributed to the World of Dragon Archive, um, and that's not including like adding the Taino Dragon or the uh, 
the uh, Spanish version, the Urhard version of the dragon, etc. That's just doing the ones from Wales. But like I said, I, I he had some inaccuracies, some other ones, and some other people were pointing out, you know, whatever their favorite platform was, any mistakes there. So he's aware of it. Um, but the the presentation is what I wanted to really show off here. The factual part's not quite accurate, but uh, I just like the way he set this up as it kind of scrolling through time. Uh, next up, Yagi Boat. And I think I've covered one of his videos a long time ago on the news here, but <clears throat> he did a video of, uh, here getting the back bit cartridge um, for his Coco 2. Now, we've covered the, that cartridge on a couple of times on the show because originally uh, the person that does them, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, sorry, but she made this kind of generic cartridge that can do disc images and cassette images, et cetera, for a variety of retro platforms. And basically they have this one thing called the back bit, which is the black thing you can see on the right here if you're watching the video, that actually you plug an SD card into and it can pull off all those things. And you have these little adapters that you can then plug into the back bit that then plug into your retro machine. So that's the Coco one, you know, particularly shown here, but you can also get stuff for C64, Atari 400, 800. And basically this exact same master cartridge, you just swap the SD cards out, will work on any of these retro platforms. You buy that piece of kit once, and then you buy these much cheaper adapter cards to adapt it to plug into the cartridge slot of these other machines. So if you're one who has a lot of retro machines, like actual physical hardware retro machines, and you want a solution for doing virtual discs and virtual cassettes, et cetera, but don't want to spend like 80 to 90 bucks on every single you know SD card solution for each of the individual computers. This is a much cheaper way to do it where you just get these little adapter cards for like $20, $30, and you have the one main cartridge that you buy once. And then you just swap SD cards as you go. So um, I know when they first released it, they only had the ROM pack cartridges and cassette. Uh, she wasn't even aware that the Coco had, you know, disk drives. And I said, well, it's kind of required for stuff like King's Quest 3, et cetera. She didn't know the Coco 3 had any of that capability either. So she added that back on. And I think she was actually going to add hard drive, like VHDs. So you could even run like Nitrous 9 stuff off this. Um, I can't remember if she's released that yet or not. I haven't actually checked her page in a while, so I'm going to have to go back there and, and find it. But if you want a bit of a review of the cartridge as it runs in the Coco 2 and explaining how the whole, you know, uh, adapter cards work. Uh, this is a pretty good review of it, and he actually demonstrates it and runs a few things off of it as well. And, of course, the links to all of these will be in the show notes in the news summary section on our Coco Discord, which is free for everybody. Oh, that was nice. Next up, I had not seen this before, too. Public. I'm not sure if that's uh, this particular one, which is a Mr. Coco sticker. Um, I don't know if anybody here is involved with that or Alan, that wasn't your daughter. Your daughter's not involved with this, I'm presuming. Well, so if she was, it'd be news to me because <laughs> I've never seen it. Okay. Because, <laughs> of course, it says, you know, it's designed and sold by Puppy with three Ps, which, um, you know, I have no idea who that is. And they're showing here it's like $3.42 Canadian for the sticker. Which is fairly cheap. I'm imagining the shipping is probably going to cost more than that. No, don't use UPS. Um, <laughs> but that's uh, how you really feel. <laughs> yeah. I I can't do that. We're a family show. They're still not willing to refund any money yet. I'm still fighting with that. Of course not. We delivered them. 
Ah, don't give me that. Anyway, <laughs> I thought it was kind of interesting to see this. I was oh, wondering if it was anybody on. here uh, doing this or anybody that any of us knows that's doing this, or if it's just completely out of the blue from somebody else. So it's still a mystery because it doesn't sound like any of you have any idea where this comes from. It's a bad copy of a Tandy manual or something. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically, I think, exactly what it is. I think it's taken right from the one of one of the Tandy manuals, probably Coco Two manual. Yeah, it's one of the later ones from the style. It looks like the guy from that juice commercial from the sixties. Oh, but you can stick it on your Mac and be cool. Well, it covers the Apple logo, which a lot of you would like. So, <laughs> okay, I'm sold. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting because it, it seems to be a little bit more and more of people from outside the core community seem to be coming in and kind of you know getting stuff out cocoa related. So that's cool. Six hundred dollar cocoa threes. Yeah, yeah, they're expensive now on eBay. Holy cow! Uh, next up, and I think Michael Furman is still in the chat, Mikey. Um, so this is part two of his uh, vlogs he's doing on Flex. So last time he just kind of went through the history of Flex and the various versions of Flex that came out for the Coco. So what he's got here is he's got the Frank Hogg Labs version of Flex version five and uh, goes through doing editing and assembling and a little bit of actually doing a few things within the actual operating system itself. Um it's 20 plus minutes, so I'm not going to play it. I'll play this little intro here, which actually has him like screwing up a few things, which he kind of fixes as when he gets to the main part of the video, but it's kind of the teaser. So I'll just play that. You can kind of get a, a flavor for it. And the rest you'll have to go watch. Okay, now that the assembling is done. We'll see what happens if we try to run this now. Bang. Still completely broke it. <laughs> That's a good teaser. I broke it. But he goes through the editor summary, goes uh, some of the syntax you need. Like, for example, you saw there, the you put the drive number first, followed by a period, followed by the file name, period, extension. Um, now, a little known secret on the uh, disk extended basically for the Cocoa is that you can actually use the drive number colon, the file name. Uh, most of us followed the manual, which I think does it the other way around. It has a file name with colon zero or colon one, depending on what drive you're doing, but it actually works on either end, um, which somebody else pointed out to me not, not too long ago, within the last couple of years, and I had no idea because I haven't really gone through the uh, the uh, Unraveled series on the Disk Basic because I hate Disk Basic. It's too low level and it sucks compared to OS9. So anyway, enough of my soapbox. I think um, I think Tristos uh, on the Model 1 had it as... Uh... Yeah, and CPM does too, doesn't well. it? Oh, does it? Yeah. I think. I haven't used CPM in decades, so I don't really remember. I wonder where the word colon came from. <laughs> <laughs> ask David. Only only Ron would ask that. <laughs> isn't it kind of weird? They are spelled differently if you're talking about the two different. Well, yeah. Pronounced the same. I mean, if you're listening to this on radio. <laughs> You know, <laughs> what if it was disk basic ease of use, Curtis? David Lord in the chat put that in. <laughs> <laughs> but he does a pretty good run through here, and he's running XOR, as you can see, Mac version, by the way. Um, he actually goes through and shows those different screen widths. Like you can see, it's running a graphic screen right now. That's why you get the smooth scroll. Uh, it defaults to, I think, the 42 by 24. 
but it's also got 51 and 64 characters as well. Um, so it just kind of shows you the commands to do that. You can actually see a little bit. So if you've never used Flex before, you get a few hit tips and tricks you can use here to try it. And it's definitely more advanced than uh, Disk Basic, and it had a pretty good software market. There was hundreds of programs done for Flex. Um, some were Cocoa specific, and some were you know more generic to any Flex system because Flex was actually on the 6800 series, on the 6809s. It came out you know years, a couple of years before the Cocoa itself did. So it's an interesting bit of history. The OS nine ended up winning out as of the Cocoa three coming out because that added you know windowing and a bunch of things that Flex never caught up with. Though there was a multitasking flex called, uh, what the heck was it called? Uniflex or something flex? Yeah, flex. Uniflex. No, it was Flex EOU. <laughs> well, I've never seen a GUI on flex, at least not that I've ever seen. So they're not quite caught up yet. We even have a flex channel on the Cocoa Discord. It's in the operating systems area. Yeah, actually, James Jones just mentioned it. Yeah, Uniflex is the multitasking version of flex. Now, next up here, uh, Shauner, which you, if you were in the chat or wandering the chat when we started the show, is actually was in the chat. I don't know if he still is. I haven't seen anything from him in the last little bit. He might he might have got bored or fell asleep or something here. But uh, that is Sean Driscoll, the author of Shanghai Base Go Nine, the author of Stranded Out of Gas, which is a text adventure game that uses the graphics windows with his GUI B library to draw nice little outline three dimensional borders around the different parts of the adventure game, like description of the room, your inventory, your command line interface part of it um and of course brother jeremy helped with that and was a big proponent of gooey b um which i actually have the source code for it now so i'm going to fix a few things because there's a few changes that i've just done done over the years and the graphics primitive routines in specific that have changed the algorithm a little bit so some of the stuff like uh bullets round bullets and the diamond shaped bullets don't quite draw properly now so I, since I have the code for you know, source code for GUI B, I will be going to fix that. There's also a few things that can be optimized better now. Like we have filled circle and filled ellipse. When you're drawing round bullets and stuff, uh, you can actually do it a little bit faster uh, if you just change it. Because he had to originally do it by drawing the circle itself and then painting in with the fill command, the outside circle and then the inside circle for the bullet. So he kind of goes through here a little bit. Um, he hasn't had a, his Cocoa system since 1997, as he mentions in the video here which I will mention is over half an hour long, but it kind of goes through his history with the Cocoa 3 and stuff. And he kind of compares it with what other GUIs were out of the time. So he's got like the Atari ST gem, I think it was called, and, you know, Amiga and, and you know, some of the stuff on Unix and Windows, et cetera. Uh, but I'll fast forward a little bit here. So he's trying to mention it. He's trying to duplicate some of this onto the Cocoa. And he actually has a picture, one of his few surviving pictures of his old Cocoa system from back in the day. So he's got the CM8 you know, RGB monitor. He's got a Cocoa 3 with a dust cover. Even his floppy drives have a dust cover. Multi-pack interface with an RS-232 card, uh, plus the uh, floppy controller itself, and a modem not, that's kind of off screen. Not seeing the 501 dust cover. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. A new thing. Now he, he said he might be doing a follow-up video to explain why he got rid of all of his cocoa equipment in 1997. I'm kind of curious myself, so uh, hopefully he will follow up on that. But uh, yeah, he kind of goes through it, and he actually found the video that I had done doing a speed comparison of, of different versions of the Nitrous 9 drivers back in the beta days, and um, kind of goes through a little bit of it here because that's basically his code running on you know his part, you know, as included in the OU. So I will play just a little clip there so you can hear his uh, dulcet tones as he's talking about it. But I'll let you go to uh, watch it on his Lord page. Introduced <laughs> every time I 
re-record over. Okay, so here we go. So this is the, I don't remember if I call this GUI B or GUI B. The B means basic, because I, I wrote the GUI in basic. In basic 09, which came with OS 9 level two, that was my favorite language of all time, of all time, basic 09. Good man. You can go yep. to the wiki page and look up basic 09. You can find the language there. It probably has not aged well, I'm guessing. Actually, I don't years, think it's aged too bad, honestly. Ago, hmm. Especially on retro systems. Carved, framed, pick frame. I wanted Shadow. to fast forward to where some of these pick frame? draw discrepancies start cropping up. So here you can see the bullet is kind of stretched a bit, and the diamond's got this weird thing here. Now that is because there was a change done to the Nitro 9 graph driver in the 2010s, I think it was, or maybe the late two knots, um, that made the drawing algorithm more accurate mathematically. But the problem is there's been software written for the previous 15 years that were based on the old one. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it may be more accurate, but it did break a few things. I mean, this is just a visual break. Like, it doesn't look right, but it's 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 not fatal. But I did hit stuff like the Qbert game. Was trying to draw those little, you know, squares, the isometric squares for the Qbert game. And because the uh, of the new line drawing algorithm, a few of them didn't connect properly. So when it went to go fill them in when you jumped on a square, it leaked out and painted the whole darn screen. Oh, gee. So I, that one, I patched that particular game itself. And I haven't seen any glitches like that in uh, Sean's programs that I've got on EOU, which is the Stranded Out of Gas and the Shanghai B09, Basic 9. Um, but this is one place where visually you can definitely see it. it. It screws up the bullets, not quite drawn right, and the diamond definitely is not. Um, if I remember correctly, the 6809 or 6309 version, because that was using algorithms I did before based on the original Tandy ones, I think those still draw right. I think this is a 6809 version that kind of glitched it a little bit but uh i mean he was quite far ahead of his time for uh you know coming up with a decent one that actually went way beyond what multiview had as far as like multiview doesn't even have buttons like that um anyway he's got the scroll bars here that actually have a more unixy look i guess is probably the best way to put it might rather than the very plain look the original multiview is very very plain and even eou right now is it's not that fancy and I don't have all these different types of window uh, raised bars. You can draw them manually, obviously. Uh, but he's got like etched and carved in a pick frame and, and framed and raised and popped and pushed and outlined and filled, et cetera. So he uh, actually pulled, pushed it quite quite far. And he actually uses this in, in the Shanghai Basic 9. And he had some other games he mentioned too, which I once he mentioned them in the video here, I remembered them from being back in you know, Delphi and CompuServe back in the 90s. I'm going to have to find those and put those on EOU2 and see if I have to patch any of those. But if you want a history of the GUI B project itself and John's history with the Coco 3 and OS 9 Level 2 and uh, Base 9 with him, it's an excellent video. And he's actually planning on doing some follow-up videos. So like I said, he was on the uh, chat earlier. I invited him to pop in. Um, so if we can get him back on, I wouldn't mind getting him on for an interview to kind of go through his history too. But I'll let him kind of catch up because he hasn't really thought about the Coco since 97. And he still does a lot of graphic three-dimensional work nowadays on modern platforms. So I don't know if he's he probably doesn't want to get back in the hardware at the very least. Uh he may, you know, maybe want to tickle the 
itch with you know some emulation stuff later on or something. But uh, I would love to have him on to talk about it, but I'm going to have to let him finish catching up and remembering what all he did back in the day. Because he, he cranked out quite a bit of stuff in the you know late 80s, early 90s. I remember seeing a lot of it on the uh, OS9 and uh, even the Cocoa Echoes on, on Fidonet because he had some, the local club he was with had Warren Harak. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he was one of the main rib sysops that you know did the whole Fidonet running stuff on Cocoa's. Um, Bill Noble was involved with that, Charles West, uh, Ron Byler, and a bunch of others. So we'll see if we can arrange that later on. And I have to agree with James Jones. The man has good taste. Exactly. Okay, next up, uh, we've got an update from Luciano Scharf. So we covered another Brazilian retro show recently that I think happened the weekend after Cocoa Fest. And this is yet another one. And this is from the uh, 11th annual Retro SC, which is a multi-platform event that took place in, I don't know how to pronounce this, Blumenau in Brazil on May 13th, which had some Coco and CP400 representation. So I'll just kind of through some of the pictures. There's not a ton of them, so it shouldn't take too long. You can see the Coco 3 is running Z89. I got some CP400s here with both versions of the keyboard, the chiclet style and the later style as well, as well as some other clothes as well here. And you can see, uh, was that uh, Shock, you know, the Shock Trooper? That's two, I think it's Shock Trooper. And getting the young ones involved, which is something we saw at, at Cocoa Fest too, which is really nice to see because, uh, let's face it, we're not getting any younger. So we have to get some young blood in there to keep the flame alive. Saxon in the uh, PMO3 color set, which just looks wrong to me. But, I mean, if you had PAL, it's probably better than black and white. There's some of the other clones running Tuts uh, 2. Prince of Persia, which actually we have the full intro demo music and all um, from Paul Fiscarelli that uh, was released as a bit of a demo um, recently. I don't think he has any plans to finish that, unfortunately, which is too bad because he, he it looks pretty awesome. It's great. Pestered him about it. We just got to keep asking. Yeah, I, I, I think we should even try to bribe him. I just don't know with what. I I agree with oh. that. Prince of Persia is a fantastic game. Uh, Jordan Mechner's stuff, both his games, were fantastically done. He used movie movie type techniques to do the motion capture and stuff. Yeah, rotoscoping or whatever he used for. Yeah, you know his brother running across to do the animation for him. Yep. His first one, um, <clears throat> uh, Karateka, he used uh, basically eight millimeter film, and then. Uh, uh, Prince of Persia used uh, VHS, but yeah, he rotoscoped to stuff. I mean, <laughs> one person yeah. doing such a fantastic job is like, whoa. Yeah, and he filled every bite of the Apple II version for him. I remember, like, he had no free RAM left at all. Maybe he'd respond to a bag of 20s. I was hoping to bribe him with chocolate bars. As long as I don't ship him UPS, it should be fun. Yeah, gee. <laughs> Imagine shipping those out here to Arizona. We'll figure out his weakness, then we'll exploit it. Yes. Yeah. Look at that black one. Yeah. Yeah, and you can see some of the original color-coded joysticks for the CP400 there with the different colored handles. There's dragon fire running on a... Which one is that? Codemex. Codemex 6809. Oh. 
There's a 64K RAM test per. I mean, Sailor Man. Now, they've got this here, and it says uh, ProSoft, and it's got a CP400 below it, so I'm not sure if they're related, but is that what the software packaging looked like for the CP400? Because that almost looks like Dragon level, you know, full-color covers and stuff like that with some pretty decent artwork. Well, it looks like it. Pretty well-attended shows you can see here. Looks like a school gymnasium or something. There's Time Banner with the uh, artifact colors reversed. <laughs> the spooky trees. Yeah. And this looks like a custom keyboard. The space bar is a little too small for me. I don't think I can handle that. Right. And the break key on the left is kind of weird. <laughs> Although I like the translucent keys with the, the letter inserts. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now, it does say CP400 on the uh, circuit board here, you can see on the right-hand side. So, this is a design for the CP400 specifically. Hmm. Here's the back side of it. Oh, cool. So, instead of doing any kind of fancy thing, they just put two keys side by side and said, there's your brake. <laughs> With one cap over the top of both of them. Yeah. And they so actually have cool. labeled all the keys too, so you don't have to like try, try to figure out what traces go to where if you kind of forget or don't have a second one to look at. And this one, they're showing it through some like glasses or something. Like, is that a VR style thing where you get to play it right up in your face playing Tetris? It's got to be. I'd love to play Phantom Slayer this way, like uh, what's his name? Ben Drakes did in England where he actually had the full you know VR gear with the walking treadmill and all that stuff to play Phantom Slayer. This would be a you know a much cheaper second way to do it, I think. Shame, shame. He lives in Wales. Is it Wales? Oh, sorry. Yes. Home of the dragon. How could I forget that? Exactly. <laughs> sorry, Ben. And here's that keyboard, uh, or a bit of an, one of the otter keyboards in CP400 with the case open like Brian Weezer had at the show at Coco Fest. Look at the circuit board from Prologica. Oh, and if you flip back to the previous photo, that thing that's sitting on on top there with the USB flash drive stuck into it, the that's GoTech. a GoTech board. Yep, so it's right up there. GoTech system. Okay. And a USB stick instead of a SD card, or does it accept both? Oh, this must be the SD. No, the Go the GoTech uses a, a USB flash drive. And that's an OLED display that's to the left of the ah, flash drive. Nice. Okay. Come on, Curtis. Stay I'm glad I have knowledgeable people to correct me. Because <laughs> this stuff I don't know much about. Even I know that. Yeah. Oh, it comes to hardware. I know nothing except how to solder yeah, my make hair. make Curtis feel small. Oh, no, it comes to hardware. I, mean, I fully admit I'm an idiot moron. Don't forget to give him a good uh, soldering iron. No, I might injure myself seriously if I did that. Now, this one, he's actually captioned here a bit. So it says, and I don't know how to pronounce this, Severino CV Jr., which presented some modifications for the CP400 color. For example, the internal installation of the Coco STC and 502 and GoTech. So that was all fitting inside the case. 
keyboards with Cherry or Apple switches and the use of virtual reality glasses. So this is, seems like a pretty interesting guy to talk to. Unfortunately, I don't know if he knows English. There's Zaxxon and P-Mode 3 and glasses. So that makes it P-Mode 3D? Ha, ha, ha. You tee them up. I'll swing on them. I actually got a video here of a kid playing it. So let's just see. Olha aí, pessoal. We were playing Zaxxon in reality virtual. Coisa desse nosso amigo aqui, ó, Severino. Valeu. Olha aí, pessoal. Anyway, that, that looks cool. If, if any of the people that can come up to one of our shows and bring this along, I would love to try this. I probably couldn't try for too long because I tend to get motion sickness with virtual reality stuff, but uh, I'd like to try it at least <laughs> once. And back to the beginning. So thanks, uh, Luciano, for posting all those pictures there. It looks like a pretty good, pretty good show. Next up, we have uh, Paul, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing your last name correctly here, but pardon me if I'm not, uh, Paul Ripke. So he posted in the Coco Facebook group, uh, he made an assembly language version of Conway's Game of Life, and he did this during COVID. Um, and he's got multiple versions of it run anywhere from the lower uh, graphics mode, like the 64 by 32 set reset graphics, all the way up to mode 4, the couple in between. And because it's assembly, it's fairly fast. I haven't compared it with, say, Sockmasters or Alan DeCock, who also did some assembly versions of it back in the late 80s. Um, but this is all publicly available on his GitHub. So he mentioned this on the Facebook and the Coco group. And if you want to go to his GitHub, once again, you get that from the show notes. He's got all the source code here, and he's got both EdTASM and LWASM-friendly versions of it. And um, of the various resolutions as well. So you can go download that if you want to give it a try, or you can look at the source and see how he did it. Uh, this is one Mr. Dave uh, reminded me. I missed these because he sent a flurry of three videos last week. And I only saw the latest one. Um, the other one had scrolled off and I kind of thought I'd already caught up. So my mistake, my apologies to Dave. So these are basically some uh, tutorial videos on how to modify machine language games that are written for P-Mode 4 artifacting to switch them back to a P-Mode 3 style screen. So you can get color on a PAL machine, even if it's not technically the right colors. Or you can actually set the palettes on a Coco 3 or a Coco VGA equipped system to get the colors closer to what they would have been with artifacting. So these are each over 10 minutes long, so I'm not going to play them here. But uh, he's got one here particularly that tells you how to go through and just you know figure out how to change the VDG setting to do PMOD 3 instead of PMOD 4, and some techniques of finding that part of the machine language code using a debugger or something. And then he did a second follow-up video here of how to change it you know, from within BASIC, uh, using only BASIC without using a debugger, etc. And you can see uh, this one here has actually got a screenshot on the title card uh, showing Demon Attack. And he's got the uh, RGB standard version here. Like if you put it on a CM8, this is what it would look like straight black and white, and then he's patched it and then set the palettes appropriately to simulate uh, what the original would. Now, it's not perfect. There's some of the subtler shades you cannot get using this technique. It just has the basic core for, you know, black, white, orange, blue. Uh, but it's definitely better than nothing. And some games were designed kind of with that in mind anyway. So some games actually work perfectly. Others, like, you know, Sailor Man or, or Donkey King, that actually kind of do a mix of the artifact colors plus treating this parts of the screen as 256 by 182 black and white. Those will not look perfect. They'll have some fraying colors around the edges of some of the, the white details. 
but some of them really work really well. So if you want to learn how to do this yourself and patch some games that you really want to see in color on an RGB monitor, um, check out Mr. Dave's videos on his uh, YouTube page. Next, we have another one from Davey's Retro Corner. I don't know if he's still in the chat or not. Um, but this is uh, ported from the ZX81, and it's drawing a sphere. Um, as he shows here, uh, he did the port in May of 2023. So he just did it like within the last few days, really, the last couple of weeks. And it kind of keeps drawing. So it's drawing it you know, in basic with set reset graphics. So it's kind of a, almost like a little slow screensaver type thing. And then, you know, eventually draws a bit more of a 3D sphere. And then it starts changing the colors and redrawing it. So it kind of makes a, makes a nice little background graphic you can have running as a screensaver. Next up, Robert Siegel, and he posted this particular one. He's posted a few things over the last week here on both the MC10 group on Facebook and, in this case, the 6847 uh, group on Facebook, which, of course, is the uh, the video display generator chip in the Cocoa and the MC10 and the Alice and the VZ200 and a few other machines as well. But he's been working on the equations here, and he he's working on this a few years back, but he's actually gotten working better now. Of converting, you know, modern full color photos or pictures or graphics to fit the uh, 128 by 96 by four color graphics mode that the MC10 has. And, and this particular one, for those that were listening in the audio, he's got a picture of Angelina Jolie, an actual photo. And then, you know, what it kicks it down to now, it's not obviously perfect with only four colors and fairly low res, medium res, I guess I'd call it, but it's, it's somewhat recognizable. So actually it works, works pretty good. And uh, he's probably going to use this for like you know, basically, you know, creating graphic images for like adventure games, etc., uh, without having to like manually draw everything using modern tools and, and modern pictures and graphics as a source. Okay, next up, we got a couple on the dragon here. Uh, so David Mitchell, once again, uh, this is a non-game thing. So this is a program called Weave, originally by Dr. Tim Langdell, and this is a type-in book as well. From the book 35 programs for Dragon 32. And this book had general programs of various kinds, including some games and stuff. It's meant to be kind of a just a graphics demo and it uh, does repeating patterns, but it kind of makes it look like, especially when it does the denser versions, it makes it look like a weave, like a latch hook rug or something like that. So you can use this as also a bit of a screensaver here. So you can see a drawing, you know, in one particular resolution here. I'm mixing four colors up on the uh, P13 screen. I'll fast forward to a different pattern or density. And it almost looks like it's drawing arcs here. So it comes up with some pretty interesting little patterns. This one looks more like a rug style thing. It almost looks like a, a Lachuk uh, color guide if you've ever done any of those. So it's been good. He's, he's been taking some of these uh, books that I don't think had versions on disc or tape that you could purchase at the time so he's actually been typing these in and debugging them himself to make sure they work and then putting them up and you can actually download them so uh, he's got several books on the go it looks like and uh he can correct me if i'm wrong but it sounds like he's probably going to finish these books off and then we'll actually have versions of these uh books like 35 programs in this particular book's case uh, as kind of quote-unquote new software for modern times 
without us all having to type them in and debug them. So big thanks to Davey. He's been really cranking out the stuff lately. He's been doing Dragon stuff and MC10 stuff. So he's giving Jim Gary a bit of a run for his money. And next up, the last story for today. So this is, I hope I'm not going to butcher his name here. Camille Gorzaska. Too late. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure I screwed up right in the first one. Um, so this is on the Dragon Group on Facebook as well. And he wrote a Python wrapper to give a GUI to Rolf Mickelson's Dragon DOS disk utility, which normally runs all command line. So it's kind of a wrapper to make it a lot easier to use. And you can go download that from his Google Drive. And uh, once again, the, the show note link will be there for you if you want to grab it. Uh, but this will make it a lot easier to use to manipulate Dragon DOS disks. Um, it also converts Cocoa binaries to Dragon format. So you can actually transfer binaries over down the Cocoa. And some programs will work without modification. Some will need some patching. Um, feel free to download it, he says here. But please read the readme file before usage. So that's cool. We're, we're seeing some more and more of these uh, utilities getting a bit more user-friendly, either with front ends like this or just rewriting the utility itself. Because um, stuff like Image Tool from MAME and uh, the Deck B and OS9 utilities from the LW Tools, I think it is. I've actually been having problems lately with the Deck B utility. It's not even recognizing disks that work in every emulator I have and on real hardware. And it keeps returning you know, weird errors, so I'm not sure what the hell is going on there. Actually, right. it's the Toolshed project, not uh, LW Tools for the oh, Deck sorry. B and OS9 utility. Okay. okay, thank you for the correction. I just downloaded them both, and I've been using them both for so long, I don't remember what came from where. Well, that's just because someone doesn't like to keep things accurate. <laughs> Why would I want to do that? That's boring. All right, that's the news for this week. That's it. Okay. I'm to wake up, everybody. It's yep. only 4.54. We've got like two more hours to go. Come on, come on, come on. One fifty-four here. Hey, Dave, what do you think about a 16-slot multi-pack? There, you're covered. Uh, okay, I'll see you guys later. <laughs> see you next week. <laughs> Don't forget the usage of the grease weasel with flex dumps. I want to see Dave do a 16-slot multi-pack, the, uh, the Daniel O'Connor method. Where you plug four regular multi packs all into each other. Sadly, that is not feasible. I didn't think two was either, but it worked for her. So, well, electrically the they'll work together, but the addressing doesn't. So, right. do you think the power supply would work? Or they all have one, don't they? They all have one. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's all I got for this week. Um, I don't think we have anything else to talk about unless anybody else has any last-minute topic suggestions. Okay, I just woke up. Did I miss the news? Yes. <laughs> yes. You were in the Oh, news. yeah, Nick, Nick, you were going to show something, weren't you? You were talking about Ah, uh, Yeah, I'll just see if I still got it here. I'll just if it's neutral, we're not going to do it. But if it's anything else, sure. Oh, okay. I don't have anything. Come on. <laughs> Come on, Nick, pull it out. Let's get, let's get uh, it going. David, what are you saying? <laughs> uh, this was... um. This was um, Kieran's uh, x roll Oh, finally... I don't want to know that you're pulling it from him. No. <laughs> Kieran, Kieran's next version of x roll is uh, still in development, but he's he's got a, uh, a test version that he showed me. Uh, it's just it's running off the web in his uh, web ver- version of x roll at the moment. So 
I have a copy of it here, but it, it's running very slow. So don't ignore the speed. Uh, it'll be faster on the on the. It's final a work in one. progress. Yeah, but what he's doing is adding in PAL artifacting uh, color in P mode three. So he's uh, taken my original donut dilemma from 1986, which used um, PAL artifacting to get an additional two colors. Uh, and that was so based six, on vertical position of dots, not horizontal. Yeah, it was horizontal uh, lines, basically, of alternating so the, colors. These donuts are now going to be chocolate covered? No, no. Um, <laughs> so it, you get an extra red and blue. So extra now does, or well, hopefully we'll, we'll now support that. So I'll just uh, share my screen if I, okay, like so. Now, from you're talking to Karen, like obviously you use this technique for Donut Dilemma. Yeah. Um, was there a lot of Dragon games that use this technique as well? Like, is there a lot I of Pal games? I don't know any other programs. I, I was only aware of my own. Um, okay, now, Karen, if you can, if you can uh, talk to that, because I think Karen had mentioned before there was some Dragon games that actually use this technique. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I, I haven't seen or are aware of any others, but Karen might be able to uh, work that out. This now, like uh, the emulator is running very slowly in the uh, online version of XRAL. So he's still working on it. The final one will be a bit bit faster, of course. Um, see the blue background? Yeah, so that's blue. an extra. Uh, he's got six colors. Uh, just yeah, because it almost nice. looks like a purplish blue. Yeah. Well, that's the closest he's been able to do. But you can still see the cyan, which is the light blue that was the actual built-in one yeah, still on it, the screen. It, so The artifacting varied depending on your CRT. Um, I mean, it, it could vary on, depending on the TV. It wasn't a, a perfect uh, science. But even America, the, the, the NTS, see the red background? Right, um, red and green and blue. and yeah. Well, the, the green is a, a cyan, actually. It's, just, it's the normal. Uh, magenta, buff, cyan, and orange, plus the that red and the blue that you saw. Uh, on yeah, the, the bluish purple with your name is it? Yeah, it was bluish mm. purple. Yeah, it varies. But that technique only worked on um, tube, yeah. um, PAL tube uh, the televisions. So the blurrier the TV, the better it was, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's but what that I always doesn't... wanted back then was worse, worse like looking screens than my standard RF channel three. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, so, um, the, yeah, the quality did vary. And I, I did remove that, um, because it doesn't work on NTSC anyway. It looks, um, well, you see the stripes, so it doesn't look very good, but, um, yeah, it, uh, Kieran's got it working, um, uh, on X-Raw. Because it emulates a, a CRT display, um, the the XRAW does now. I think he's got it in the renderer. You can um, actually, I'll just see if I can get that simple. I mean, it looks looks too good though. It needs to be well, fuzzy with lines. That that's it with it with it turned off. I can't. Yeah, you can see you can see the horizontal stripes now. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I've turned off the thing. You can see the stripes. But when they're on a TV, they would blur. Now, wait till you see the uh, title, which is red. Ah, uh, that one sort of hides it fairly well. You can roughly yeah, you can see, see the donuts over the 
other over the red, right? Yeah. But yeah, you can see the banding on your name there for sure. Yeah. And that's it now simulating the uh, CRT. So it smooths it out. Um, but that's how it was released originally in 1986, um, where I was trying to get more colors out of the four colors from P Mode 4. And um, when Tandy mm. picked up Donut Dilemma, that was just when the Coco 3 came out, they said, oh, we want a Coco 3 version. And of course, well, I had to, had to get rid of all that striping and all that and i i did change it um for but Tandy. you did you did actually set custom palettes though because then you of course you didn't care because you could just set yeah the on the coco 3 you could just set custom palettes uh it was sold on cassette in tandy one side had the original version for coco one and two with pal artifacting the flip side had the slightly modified one for coco three uh that's how it was sold in tandy but yeah, this is showing you the original PAL artifacting version and what it used to look like. And probably even better than what it used to look like because it's a little bit sharper. Yeah. It depend yeah. and like I said, it depends on the on your TV, you know, some TVs gave a terrible reception even under the normal colors. But that was the best you could do that I could do on the uh, PAL artifacted colors. There we are. So that's the news. Cool. I, I, I I'm curious to see some of the dragon games that Karen had mentioned that did use that technique too, because I, I yeah, I've never yeah, seen them so, before. So it'd be good if you can add some. Yeah. I've, I've told him you can add my donut dilemma to the uh, online game software list that pops up on uh, XRAW online, so he can bundle that into to, so people can see the six colors. But anyway, it's Donut Dilemma. I'll try and turn off the share. The game that Neutroid should have been. Oops, sorry. I promise I was. And now we go on to Neutroid. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I don't have anything to show. Cool. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to trying that. Like I said, I know they've mentioned in the past there was some Dragon games that did use that same technique as you did with the, the vertical. Yeah, I'd like to see it. Let's see if they got any more colors. I only picked those red and blue because they seem to work. Yeah, they blended most, the best, I think, from what you told me before. The other the ones were. And they worked on most TVs. Yeah. Some of them, maybe some other fancy combinations, didn't always work. So I didn't want to have something that might work and might not for some people. So I just went with red and blue. But it may be possible to get another, at least another two colors. <laughs> like um, NTSC artifacting, you can get a. The yellows and the uh, purples and greens and stuff. Yeah. yeah, and that that again depends on your TV or or yeah monitor and the tint control. Yeah, yeah. So it's very it is variable. <laughs> cool. Well, well, thanks Nick for showing us that, and and thanks to uh, Kieran, of course, for actually working yeah, on yeah. that because I'm kind of curious about to see some of the Dragon games now. I think he's got some other things coming up as well in the uh, new X Raw, but. Um, that was the one he showed me yesterday. So he can, I can. He he wanted me to compare the um, PAL artifacted colors with uh, the actual ones. That's it. Cool. Well, I can't think of anything else, and there's no All reason right. to just stretch the show out for no reason. So, ready to stick a fork in it? Beautiful. I think so. Okay, fork it. 
This concludes another episode of The Coco Nation, the world's leading live interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. For all things The Coco Nation, visit us on the web at thecoconation.com. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to show at thecoconation.com. The Coco Nation show would not exist without the community and its cast and crew. The Coco Nation theme song copyright 2022 D. Bruce Moore. Mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore. The Coco Nation is over. Join us on the Coco Discord server. Coco forever. Okay, that should do it for today. Thank you for joining us, everyone. You have a good weekend, and we'll see you next week on the Coco Nation Show. Is that where we are? Hello, I'm David Ladd, and welcome to the Coco Nation Show. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, bye-bye. See you all next week. Bye, Bye, everyone.